Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Revely, revely, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. It's the 14th of September, 2022, and it's time for Morning Combat. Hi, everyone. I am merely one half of your hosting duo. My name is Luke Thomas. I join you from the capital of Estados Unidos right here in Washington, D.C., joined by my friend and yours. He's got shoe polish in his hair. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> He's got, I don't know what's coursing through his tummy right now. Probably things that are beyond reproach. I don't know. One way or the other, he's my friend and yours. It's the king of Connecticut. It's Brian Campbell. What's up, BC? Luke, I'm not always there when you call, as evidenced by me showing up for this show about 10 seconds <laughs> before it started. But I am always on time. And, and why we're late. And why we're late. And look, I just happen to be wearing, remember this? this? I could sell this one day. This was a failed merch item attempt, right? Remember this, Luke? Yes, United this States is pre-RJ. So we got to give credit to RJ. It's pre-RJ. Our, who we found, by the way. Our, our, our call out to nature for, for a wellness check on RJ brought huge dividends which we can get to shortly but Luke it's Wednesday it's hump day uh you know I'm as good as a guy can be who's an absolute piece of shit coming off a of red eye yesterday right I mean you know not that good but I'm here Luke I'm ready to bed I okay? went to bed last night at 8 30 8 30 I went to bed and it was more mm-hmm. than just the red eye it was sort of accumulative from several days of not sleeping but I hit my wall yesterday and went from 8 30 to 7 that's pretty good I think yeah meanwhile better. meanwhile Anderson Silva's out here dancing and fighting younger guys and you and I can barely get out of bed in the morning Luke. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what did you do yesterday? I just sat around for a long time in different places, and I'm exhausted from it. Uh, But here we are, ready for today's show. A lot to get to. There's UFC this weekend. There's boxing this weekend. Big boxing, as a matter of fact. Although kind of a lack of buzz, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. So first things first, thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Hit subscribe. If you are new here, one of our new subs that we've gotten um, in the last month or so, welcome. We do this three times a week, live 11 a.m. in the East, plus a whole lot more beyond that, including BC. I think tomorrow, the Chael Sonnen um, interview, we sat down, Red, uh, I almost said Red Shoe, excuse me, Room Service Diaries, Room Service Diaries of Chael Sonnen's out tomorrow, I believe, so be on the lookout for that. We tried to do a Red Shoe Diaries episode yeah. uh, after with he a different guest, it. but uh, into it. What can you we do? got shot down pretty hard on that regard, but uh, uh, yeah, well, look, we got great shit out there, okay? We got interviews yeah. with Gennady Golovkin, with trainer Jonathan Banks, I will be chatting later today with the one and only Big Red himself, Canelo Alvarez. So YouTube.com slash Morning Combat, always willing to to stick it where the sun don't shine, right? And get you fired up for the world of combat sports, all right? That's right. Yeah. Maybe get tattooed there as well. One never knows. Uh, all right, so here we go. There's the merch right there. You can go to morningcombat.store. You can't get what BC is wearing, but you can get a whole lot of other stuff. 
Tell them what they can get, BC. And also, we have a little bit of a surprise for them, do we not? Uh, before we throw to the surprise, as always, folks, you can get the finest merch of any you know award-winning podcast at morningcombat.store. Ask for RJ, right? RJ uh, Bumplemaker. But, Luke, he made it big this week. Uh, he said bomber jackets are flying off the shelves so fast that we're down to our final load, and there's a handful left. So if you, this fall season, want to be out at the old uh, soccer pitch or wherever, I don't know, picking pumpkins, whatever you pick, why don't you pick it with some MK? We got great shit out there. And we also, Luke, tend to have the greatest, you know, supporters, fan subs. Every Wednesday is a big part of this show. And I believe we've got a meme that ties into our merch in a very big way here that we're going to throw to. Where in the world is RJ Dunzelfucker? <laughs> so this so, was sent in by the one and only Jay Paquette, a.k.a. JP from Mount Uniac, Nova Scotia. And Luke, uh, we had put the call out on a wellness check on, on good old RJ Dunzelfucker and... JP answered that call. So do you know what RJ did in reciprocation, Luke? How about this for a reach around? He wants our fans to be so excited about wearing our merch and so excited about what JP's done to our universe right here that if you want 15% off the entire Morning Combat store right now at morningcombat.store, why don't you enter code JP15, JP15 for 15 Luke, you don't even know the names of the camera guys in the show. I don't expect you to know this Nova Scotian web screen we got uh, growing over here. But uh, shout out to Jay Paquette, just the same. This lasts till Friday. So if you want to get your deal in, no time like the present. There you go. JP15, 15% off everything store-wide starting right now. On top of that, BC, of course, Showtime is the label that pays. You can go to Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce as a reminder, though, Jake Paul versus Anderson Silva will be on Showtime pay-per-view when that happens October 29th. 29th excuse me. Uh, on top of it, morningcombat at gmail.com. You want to reach the producers for Dead Wrong, for fan subs, or whatever else, they read that. So send them an email, yeah. morningcombat at gmail.com. Do you see anything one else? final time, that, that code is JP15, 15, 15% off our fine merch. Luke, I am ready to get into gear. I really haven't looked at this rundown much, so me and Mikey are probably going to be feuding later, but I'm ready to deliver, okay? Well, I did because um, I'm a professional, but I got to remind everyone we have another final partner here on the MK Universe that, you know, I want to make sure folks understand I'm not merely the president of this health club. I'm also a client. Uh, AG1, BC. Have you had your AG1 today? I did. Actually, I started the day with it. Even though it's a show day, I started the day with it because I needed it. I needed to get that funk of flying off of me. And if you feel like we do, most days is an absolute POS. How about taking a step to get ahead of that. Here's something I use every day, Luke. One scoop of the green magic powder every morning. It's giving me better gut health, energy, no more pills and vitamins. Dude, you could take that shelf that you had all your BS, like, you know, fake creatines and all that stuff you think that's keeping you alive. All you need is the big green, AG1. That's it. That's all you need, by the way. Uh, good for, as he indicated, energy, focus, recovery, immune system, and by the way, I've got it in my cup here, but I poured my little travel packet into it. You can travel with it as well, BC. Yeah, I mean, it's one delicious scoop that doesn't taste like medicine. It's got a really nice, soft, subtle, citrus, tropical taste. I like it a lot. It's got whole sourced, uh, whole food, super sourced. Uh, maybe I can get that right, Luke. Do you know you what it's got? You can just get to the actual green part. It's got high quality minerals. It's got probiotics. It's got adaptogens. It's got all that good stuff that we really can't define. 
but you can take it with you. It's lifestyle friendly on the road or wherever you are, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, or an Ariel Hawani fan. It still could work for you because it's got one less one gram of sugar in it, non-GMOs, no nasty chemicals. It's clean like I'm trying to be right now, Luke. Costs you less than $3 a day that you're investing in your health cheaper than your cold brew habit. And again, don't just ask me. 5,000, okay, reviews for Athletic Greens out there. And you want to talk about leading health experts? I'm talking about Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais giving a thumbs up to our partners, all right? Right now, time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially hitting into the flu and cold season. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Yeah, not even, it doesn't cost three bucks a day. It's fantastic. So here's the deal. Go to athleticgreens.com slash morning combat right now. Here's what you're going to get along with your first purchase. The five free travel packs that Luke sang. How about that immune supporting vitamin D, a one year supply, little droplet just to sprinkle a little bit on the action. Athleticgreens.com slash morning combat. Let's consummate. Again, athleticgreens.com slash morning combat to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right. With that in mind, BC, let's start with topic number one. It is a busy, uh, I should say, combat sports weekend this Saturday. We'll talk about Canelo versus Triple G, which is by far the biggest overall combat sports event in just a moment. But as is customary on this program, we do start with the Ultimate Fighting Championship. We are back in Vegas, UFC Fight Night 60 BC, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night. Corey Sandhagen, Corey Sandhagen taking on Song Yadong. This is an interesting one, BC. And the reason why I say that is if you actually look at this matchup, Song Yudong surging, Corey Sandhagen surged to the top of the division and then found himself just a little bit wanting. Now, I did think he deserved to beat TJ Dillashaw, but it was very, very close. Obviously, Sterling had his way with him, and so did Jan. Not quite exactly where he wanted to be. He's 30 years old, trying to reclaim, I think, uh, a little bit of what he had achieved with the Ascension. But Song Yudong is absolutely on fire at this point, really coming into his own. How do you assess this matchup? Yeah, it ends up being like the perfect sort of crossroads fight in what is right now the sport's deepest and most exciting division of 135. But I want to, I, I almost don't want to frame it as that, even though it's true, because like you mentioned with Corey Sanhagen, you couldn't find two bigger fans of his UPL, UBL, upward bound limits, or Luke of just, you know, how many ways in the variety of his striking and really how much he's an IQ fighter who thinks his way. And it just so happened that he's riding a two-fight losing streak against the very elite. And look, every era of great fighters in any division certainly needs the faces, right? Like the four kings we had in boxing and in uh, 160 pounds back in the day. But you also need those really tough guys that give those guys great fights. We saw Dan Hooker live that reputation in the lightweight division the last few years, even though... He really proved in a lot of his step-ups just how close he is to that level. I think Sanhagen's already there or even further. The luck hasn't gone his way with a two-fight losing streak and with matching up against somebody who's rising so quickly in Song Yudong. Inevitably, that crossroads moniker will be there, and that's what this fight is. But this is also Corey Sanhagen's chance to, to kick the door back down and remind you that his name deserves to be in this mention of the best fighters in this division, which is so outrageously deep from young guys, new guys, old guys, all that and in between. Um, a lot of pressure on Sanhagen's shoulders for, for sure. But on the flip side, Luke, if Song Yudong can extend his win streak and beat a guy like this, we're talking now, not later, as a legitimate contender in this division. And for a guy so young, long had Mr. Faber in his corner hyping him up, 
Uh, this fight's got some legitimate stakes. It may come in the hangover aftermath of a much hyped pay-per-view, but you know you and I will be dialed in Saturday night and ready for this one. This is an interesting one. Corey Sandhagen sitting at fourth in the rankings. Uh, Song Yudong sitting at 10. Uh, fairly big split between them. With this, Song Yudong almost certainly, it's hard to say if he enters the top five because Aldo is currently sitting at six. Although if Sandhagen gets bumped out, that moves him up a little bit. But he could probably find himself in the five to six mark, depending on how things go. Marlon Vera would find himself just behind Marab Dewalish Wheelie. Like a loss for Sandhagen here, BC, isn't just devastating for, I think, his future, although not permanent. He's still 30 years old. But it would kind of rearrange the top of that bantamweight ladder just a little bit by pushing some other guys close. I mean, I guess it would set up a Marlon Vera versus Marab fight, wouldn't it? Because if you look at the thing, you got Peter Yan or Piotr Yan taking on Sean O'Malley at UFC 280. Then you got Dillashaw, who's fighting Sterling. So that's the top three guys at bantamweight: Sterling, Yan, and Dillashaw. After that, it's Dewalish Wheelie, and then and then Sandhagen. So if Sandhagen gets bumped out behind him is Marlon Vera, it ends up kind of feeding into a potential number one contenders bout situation. Uh, depending on how it goes, is that a fair read of the evidence? You think? Yeah, that's a fair read. I, I and and as much as you know. It's such a big launching pad potential for uh, Song Yudong and all the ways you've been saying. Luke, on the flip side, Sanhagen stops the losing streak and reminds us who he is against a guy this, you know, prized in terms of his future. Uh, we got to crash him right back into that title picture. I mean, w- wouldn't you like to see him fight fighting a, a Jose Aldo? I know he's coming off a loss here, Luke, but I mean, there's some royalty in Sanhagen? the mix of this top ten. Yeah, where where. Where big big fights available uh, to Dude, both. I mean, con- consider who he's around. Here, here's all the different fights you could make. You could make Sandhagen versus Marab. You could make Sandhagen versus Chito Vera, which, by the way, sounds like heaven. Yeah. And you could do Sandhagen versus Aldo. Any of those in that space all work. I, I love this fight. I love this fight a lot in that regard, Luke. Um, for the uninitiated. What has been, you think, the difference in Yudong the last three fights? He he always showed flash. I mean, didn't he have that very close disputed loss in his initial rise? Like, he's had, you know, a couple step backs in that regard. What have you seen specifically that has fueled? I mean, he's only 24 from China, yet I feel like I've known about him for a while. I think the fight I'm mentioning is his close decision loss to Marlon Vera in 2020, in which you really could have argued in his direction. He also has the draw to Cody Stamen and then his first uh, defeat in the UFC to Kyler Phillips. But what do you think has has helped him turn the corner on this recent rise? I'd have to go back and look at the Kyler Phillips win. I don't exactly recall what the... Uh, I, I cannot recall that fight from memory. But certainly in the last couple, and I think overall what you could say about him was, first of all, he's got big power. Um, that's a big component. Like when he lands, he lands with authority. He's quick. He's super athletic. But really, BC, it's not all that complicated. He has just developed the kind of striking where he's able to set traps, where he's able to initiate these traps, right? He doesn't just wait for something to to happen, and then he's got a good kind of response or kind of a combo that he goes to. The difference between the guys who are good and very good is the ones who can create their own luck, the kinds who can assess the situation, make reads to stay out of it, and then begin over time to lay traps for these people to walk into uh, and he has been able to do that. It's a next level of sophistication of striking. And as you pointed out, he's not very old. I don't know if he's t- yeah, he's 24 years old. He'll be 25 in December. I mean, he's got a long way to go before he's even really reached his prime. But the level at which he's been able to show um, thoughtfulness about his offense, intentionality about his offense. It's not just, I'm going to go in there and see what happens. Yes, you have to feel things out. 
but it's about uh, what what are the traps that I'm going to set? Why would these traps work with this particular style, this particular approach, the length of this opponent, the stance of this opponent? He can just make these sort of diagnostic reads and then put together the kind of offense that works behind it. And then you add in the athleticism. You add in the fact that he can scramble really well. You add in the fact that he's got big power. The results, for the most part, speak for themselves. Yeah, he he's skilled. He, he seems to be sort of a next-level maturity to him that I've liked the last few fights. I mean, look, he, he got Marlon Morris out of there in just over two minutes, which recent history has shown you that's what you're supposed to do. But boy, did he look you know impressive in doing so. Do you echo what I say that you could go back two years and give him the edge against Vera in hindsight? It was that close? I mean, he did beat Vera. You mean like... Do I agree? I, you're saying I have that flipped. You're saying that that he beat Vera, but the argument yes. is that Vera could have or should have gotten the edge there. Yes, Do I have that argument. backwards? The argument, and this, the thing is, like, for Vera against these top five guys, I think this is really true. He's much better off not taking a three-round fight. Yeah, He's much better off yeah. taking a five-round fight because he takes over much later in fighters. Wouldn't exactly call him a slow starter, but he's just much more of a dynamic threat in rounds, late rounds three, four, and five. And so this one was a three-round contest. Remember, that one was at, at featherweight. This was the card, the Overeem Harris card in Jacksonville, Florida, right in the middle of the pandemic. I think that was in, when was that, May of 2020. Yeah, like we were barely, you know, along in that process. And so, you know, who knows what kind of factors played into that as a consequence. But um, for Vera, you know, would you like his chances in a rematch in a five-round fight? I probably would. I, don't, I can't speak for you, but I probably would. Yeah, I mean, but it just goes to show the experience Yudong in a short window has been able to have. Yes. Had that split decision went over Casey Kenny, starting to put the names together. I mentioned Marais. Luke, on the flip side, back to one Corey Sanhagen. Uh, I mean, how much would you or should you change as a direct result of, you know, some very elite losses? I mean, he came back nicely, right, from that from that Sterling, the speed of that Sterling defeat, which, which was certainly shocking. Had the two-fight win streak looked to be the same dude all over again. Two decision losses against the very best in Jan and Dillashaw. There's really not much you can say negative about his performances, but what would you like to see changed from that? A couple of things that I've really noticed. One is that, I mean, you know, he put Edgar's lights out with that one single strike, right? but Edgar was kind of walking into him. It was a, He was jumping into it. Like, he was able to amass a lot of power. In general... I don't think it's fair to say that uh, Edgar has, excuse me, that Sanhagen has poor power. But, you know, in terms of just the amount of strikes he has to put on guys, he doesn't have a hugely high KO ratio by virtue of that, at least not against the upper limits of this division. So that's the first thing I'd say is that, like, there needs to be, he has all the ability in the world. But the two major problems are, one, his willingness to give up bad positions in grappling and then just stay there thinking that this is going to be like the judges are going to see things in his favor. I think there's not enough urgency to either attack from the bottom or get up off the bottom or break the hands and then, re, re, uh, you know, uh, uh, break contact and then reestablish the fight. That's the first problem I think he's had. The second problem is that he's a little too willing to take damage. Yeah. In fact, and I, we'll go through this on sat on Friday. Excuse me. I'll just but I'll put this one little piece of stat in here. He does have a positive striking differential, BC. Like when he's dealing, it's out there, but he absorbs four and a half strikes per minute. It's just high. It's really high. It's going to be high to fight guys who have big power, who have, you know, and again, as you get up the ladder, guys who can land with a lot of authority because they can thread that needle and they can find that window. To me, he's got this offense that's just cooking. He's switching stances. He's throwing this. He's spinning that direction. And when he's on, he's on. He can do so much. 
getting up off the bottom, breaking contact, reestablishing the fight, priority number one, priority number two, being a little bit more edited and selective with what he's throwing so that he's not getting countered as often as he is. I think it's yeah. a big feature. That's that a good tease big. for Friday's breakdown where I'm going to have a lot of questions about, about uh, Song so, Yudong's takedown. Let me ask you about Sanhagen. Here. Based on what you've seen, at his yeah. best, dude, he's looked amazing. Are you at 30 years old? So I know Song Yudong is much, much younger, but 30 is not old. So he should be beginning to turn some corners if he's going to. Do you still believe in the idea of Corey Sandhagen as a potential title contender? I do. I do. It's not too late yet, even though back-to-back losses in, I want to say, close-ish. Obviously, the Dillashaw one was a split decision, and you know there was a large population that thought he had done enough based on their interpretation of the scoring rules, which subsequently, Luke, I think we've debated, read, read the actual literature, and then threw our hands up in the air and said, look, it is the eye of the beholder. It's not damage. It's impact, however you want to gauge that. The Jan fight was different. It was more of an action fight, and I think even though he was competitive and stubborn and in that, you know, was he really in that? Was there points where I thought he could overtake and, and win that fight? No. So something needs to change, but I don't think we're at panic mode yet or the mode where we where we sort of brand him as being, you know, a tough out for the very best. But, right, but. Three times now against the very best, we've seen him come come up empty. But we have in the in the in between, as you as we mentioned with those two fights, the Edgar and the Marais, did see him bounce back. Um, everything you said about not taking as much damage certainly has to be a big part of it. The ground situations definitely as well. I don't know, Luke. Sometimes it, it comes down to like he can do so many things well. It can be so smart and creative in the traps that he sets. That is he being overly too cute at times. You know, I'd like to see a, a workmanlike uh, performance here and a, and a, I don't know, like a, a focus on what he does great and, and build that lead and try to control this fight without having to make some, you know, you lose this fight, Luke, it's going to be a different conversation in terms of what the, what the tail end of his future could be like. Do you go to another weight class? You know, do you alternately dramatically change your game? We're not there yet, but what makes the stakes of this fight so important is he's going to have to step up and perform because he has a very well-rounded and young and hungry fighter coming after him who's got a great corner and, you know, has shown us that for all the talk we say, Luke, about Chinese MMA and, and Zhang Wei Li and the leech, Dude, Song Yudong's coming the hell on. So the challenges only get harder in this division uh, if they weren't hard enough for Sanhagen. So, um, uh, you know, I'd I, I like for his arc to see him to get a win here, Luke. It, it, it would be necessary, but I'm not panicking yet. I still got a lot, of, a lot of love and respect for what he can bring. One thing to keep in mind, part of the reason why he accepts so much damage is he's got a really good chin, at least for now, right? I mean, obviously, the, you, the, none of those hold up over time. But Corey Sanhagen can take a shot. And certainly Song Yudong can deliver. Uh, but this will be an interesting one because five-round contest, Sanhagen, um, th- if he's going this to... The, this is what I love about this fight. If he's going to get right, this is a great test for him to show what he needs to do to get right. And yeah. I think he has enough ability to f- either freeze at times, Yudong, or uh, you know uh, stick and move. But he's got to stick to something as a consequence. He has to like be disciplined about the game plan in ways that I think in other fights that he's lost against the high-level guys, um, he hasn't necessarily shown. By the way, like he's got these losses up here, but if you look at the losses of Sandhagen, so his losses in the UFC, Aljamain Sterling, Dillashaw, and Jan, all guys who have held the belt. All yeah. guys who have held the belt. In the case of Yadong, who obviously is up and coming and you know has been a different place, not that these mean the same things, he's only got the one loss to Kyler Phillips and then the draw to Cody Stamen. 
But like the thing I'm pointing out here is Sanhagen has already touched the top of the division and found himself a little bit lacking and needing to make improvements to, to, to reclaim that space. You know, if Yudong had been thrust up to the top of that division in the same way, I think he'd have a you know similar or potentially worse record. So all I'm trying to point out here is Sanhagen is coming off of a bunch of losses, but he's fighting the very most elite guys in the division, which is why he has them. It's not like he's lost to rank and file in that division. So keep something to keep in mind as well. Do you think he could have success in other divisions if it ever became a point where he would need to, Luke? He does have an interesting body where you could imagine adding adding certain, you know, muscle to that long frame. I tend to think he's probably going to be his best at the weight class he's in. Yeah. To me, it's not a function of size that would fix anything. It's a function of fight style. Um and the, his fight style is good. I want to be clear. I have a high opinion of him. I ask you, do you think he can still be a title contender? You said yes. I think yes. so, too. I think yes. so, too. I perfectly agree that he can. He's got so much ability, but some of the other pieces kind of need to be there to get him to really get over that hump. Uh, BC, also on this card, the card itself, it's something, what, I, what would you call it? A hardcore fan's delight? It doesn't have a ton of big names on it. Your co-main is Chidi Njikawani, who has been on fire since he came through the Contender Series. Taking on Gregory Rodriguez. This is a middleweight fight. You gotta love this contest. Gregory Rodriguez, 30 years old, uh, has one has the loss to Armin Petrosian, which was split, came back and then demolished Julian Marquez. Uh Enja Kawani, man, I remember covering his career a long time ago, back when he was an RFA. Had a stint in Bellator that didn't go all that great, losing to Koreshkov, losing to John Salter, getting submitted, by the way, by John Salter, getting finished off by Koreshkov, losing to Carvalho. But then he had the one rebound fight in LFA and then has looked awesome in UFC. Three fights, if you want to count contender series, three finishes, all by virtue of uh, uh, KO or TKO. BC, what do you think about this one? Do you like this? Uh, how, how do you assess this contest? Yeah, I like this a lot. I, I, you know, it's always the best story when somebody has had bouts of, uh, you know, uh, of losing on their on their journey of growth and have bounced around as, as Chidi has, as you just mentioned, that long history. But you look at those last four fights in particular that you mentioned, 4-0 with four stoppages, including two in the octagon. I mean, he's making moves to get the co-main event slot here at middleweight. Shows the potential uh, for the 33-year-old to make it happen right now. Luke, he bangs. And that's, you know, the calling card on that. But you're going to need a lot more than that at this level. And I think the last few fights, we're seeing that that maturity. We're seeing him add more. Um I want to see now. I, you know, I don't know a ton about Gregory Rodriguez, and I'd like you know for you to illustrate that, Luke, the thirty-year-old from Brazil, and, and and show me how good of a challenge this is. But I've enjoyed the Chidi journey up to this point since the, since the rebranding. Uh, this guy is—they call him RoboCop. You have seen him. He's bald. Um, uh, he has a background in competitive jujitsu, a, a pretty high-level one at that, or at least he's got a very good one. He's got a very good. Like you would actually think that. Um, you would think that he would have a jiu-jitsu game first, but he actually has a bit of a striking game. He's got a sort of a simplistic striking game, but I don't say that in, in an insulting way. He's got, like, remember, like, if you look at the game of Robert Whitaker, it's not simplistic, but he doesn't have a ton of weapons. Uh, Rodriguez is kind of like that. He's got a much, little bit more of a boxing game than a kickboxing game, although he has a little bit of both, but I would say a little bit more of that. Black belt in jiu-jitsu. I think he has a black belt under Jacare on top of it, and Damn. he's got heavy hands. He's absolutely willing to get right in your face. He looks a little bit older than he is. You would think he might be like 37, 38 based on the, the sort of the weatheredness of his look, but he is a dynamic oh, force. He's dude, got a he good fought, clamp. Yeah, he knocked out Julian Marquez in the first round last fight. I remember yes. this guy completely. Okay, Luke. My casualness caught up with me. I'm back. I'm back in gear. All right. 
Yeah, I'm glad you did a lot of prep for today's show. That's why the folks tune in is for your, you know, the next level insight that you provide. I, had a, um, you know, I wrote this massive feature on Triple G. Look, don't read it, though. Please don't read it. Well, I, well, then we look forward to your Triple G breakdown. Also on this card, BC, I have to tell you, a gentleman uh, I'm enjoying more and more, Bill Algio, Senior uh, Perfecto, is taking on Andre Feely, the uh, actor slash fighter, who's been in a rough run, BC. He had two wins in a row over Miles Jury and Shaman Marais. Back in 2019, but since 2020, he fought Sadiq Youssef, who, by the way, is tough as shit, so that's a loss or whatever. Comes back and rebounds against Charles Jordan, but it was a split. Then loses to Bryce Mitchell, who he got basically out-wrestled the whole time, uh, although he was able to stand a little bit. Had the no contest against Daniel Pineda, and then loses via TKO in 41 seconds against Joe Anderson Brito. This, of course, was back in April of 2020 at the Font versus Vera card. Bit of a rough stretch for Feely. Very rough stretch for Feely. Very rough stretch, and I think both uh, both of those wins in particular. You mentioned the knockout of Shaman Rice in 2019, and then that split decision win in a in a brawl against Air Jordan in 2020. Luke, it 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 tricked me to the idea that he had turned that corner. He's always been an exciting guy uh, who could package wins and losses together. You know, two wins and then a loss, two wins and then a loss had been a run for him. But, you know, you always hear Coach Mr. Faber, excuse me, talking about the upper bound limits. We loved him in Faber's weed thriller in terms of his acting. But that's, you know, and he's got a weird tattoo of Uriah on his leg. None of that stuff matters in terms of his growth as a fighter. Luke, I've been tricked twice in the last three years, but he's 32 now. It's not that he can't win any fight at any time, but he can't get consistent. And that has always been the problem here. Um, this is not an easy matchup for him. This is going to be a, a referendum-type matchup. I could see him winning it and us getting tricked again, but is he that type of guy, Luke, who's never really going to find it? He seems like me and my commitment to exercise over the past decade. Here's the thing. He's 32. He'll be 33 not till June, so he just turned 32 or you know, relatively recently turned 32. This is the thing for me. So he's not too old, and I do think highly of him as a fighter, but two things I point out. One... He lost to Sadiq Youssef, and he lost to Bryce Mitchell. That means he got outstruck, and it means he got outgrappled, okay, by guys who are sort of higher in that division at this point. That's the first problem. The second problem is, so like, in other words, it's not like he's like getting beat because he's got one sort of, you know, aspect of his game that hasn't come along far enough. It's that no matter which way he goes, there appear to be guys at featherweight who can really handle him. That's yeah. the first problem. The second problem is he's been in UFC. He made his debut in UFC in 2013 BC he's been here for almost 10 years now granted he got here when he was about about 23 or so so he's very young when he got here but I think if you're going to see the development at 32 years old now you got to do it right now now is the time there's really not a lot if he doesn't turn a corner fairly quickly then I don't know if there's a corner to be turned to really go to the next level of his career is it more dramatic than that than we realize when you do consider the last five he's 0-3 0-3 with a... I'm sorry, last four. He's, I'm sorry, 1-3 with a no contest in his last five. I can't speak right. English today. So 1-3-1, um, and one, basically. or one You three, extend one. that with another loss? I mean, you, you're, you're talking job security issues at that point. And it's tough for a guy that's flashy, can be fun, and when he is having success with, 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 with aggressive striking... Uh, you know, I, I thought I saw the rise of patience, of more technique, of more planning, and some of that has gone out the window. Um... A great opportunity for Bill Algeo, Luke, to to raise his stock against a name we respect. But, yeah, it is referendum time. It is now or never for, for touchy-feely. Uh, by the way, they both have a common opponent, Joe Anderson Brito, who Bill Algeo beat 
Uh, Bill Algio, of course, lastly, you'll remember him from the Ortega Rodriguez card in Long Island beating Herbert Burns. Herbert Burns tried every submission he could along the way and couldn't get it done. Bill Algio, very, very talented fighter. I, th- I, th- I think he's out of extreme couture. I think um, I met him when I went to go interview Eric Nixick at the at his office. But Yeah, I heard that it, was great. I heard that went great. Well, I mean, someone was like, hey, fuck off, Luke. I don't want to ever spend time with you unless I have to. And I was like, okay, I mean, I can make that happen if you want. I mean, that's not my call. I'm out, you know, you know I'm, I'm a, for work, it's different, Luke. For work, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a... I'm a shower-upper and a deliverer. Uh, Luke, I did want to mention the odds on both the main and co-main, which are very close at this moment. In that main event, according to Caesars Sportsbook, minus 200 Corey Sanhagen, plus 170 for Song Yudong. And in this co-main event, um, I'm sorry, in in this fight in particular, the third fight down on the card, minus 120 for Touchy Feely, plus 100 for Bill Algeo. The the odds maker's given respect. To Andre Feely, Luke, but this is going to be a tough fight. Uh, yeah, it is going to be a tough fight. I actually, you know, I would expect that Algeo would win based on current form, but it's, I think it's fairly close-ish um, in that regard. So that's a fun fight also as well. BC, there's a couple other sort of interesting ones. The guy who I think it was week one or week two from the Contender Series, one of the guys who trains with Sean Brady, uh, Joseph Pfeiffer is on this card, taking on Alan Amadovsky. The card will open with the Canadian lumberjack himself, Tanner Bosser, taking on Rodrigo Nascimento. Also, BC on the card. Yeah, there's the a lot of undercard magic, Luke. There's a lot of yeah. reasons to tune in early, yes. right? Damon Jackson taking on Pat Sabatini. Pat Sabatini might be one of the most underrated up-and-comers in all of the UFC. Aspen Ladd taking on Sarah McMahon at Bantamweight. Why don't you pause right there, okay? You ready? Why don't you mm-hmm. pause right there? Luke, this is the second most interesting fight in the card. Aspen Ladd, Sarah McMahon, women's bandwagon. Um, how many more chances does Aspen Ladd get to be, well, certainly the next big thing potentially at Bantamweight, but, you know, you put that with an asterisk because it's not going to take much in three of the four women's divisions in the UFC with, you know, Strawweight being the only consistently deep one to become a title contender, to make noise. We have watched Aspen Ladd go through this before. Oh, this is going to be the... F- the fight where we're not going to have weight issues and we're not going to experiment at Featherweight. Oh, we're back at Bantamweight. Look, she just had that big close-up against Raquel Pennington and came away with another decision loss in which you exit that going, something's wrong here. Is it the trainer-fighter connection? I know that's further amplified by her and Jim West having that relationship, but, you know, the talent that we've seen in her better moments, which certainly you have to look back at her last win, the 2019 stoppage of Yana Konitskaya, in which she went back to the corner after the second round, got an earful, and came out in 33 seconds and finished a very tough fighter and a former title challenger. That has been, though, the only bright spot in four fights. Okay, she loses to GDR in 16 seconds, questionable stoppage, whatever. But most recently, the loss by decision at featherweight to Norma Dumont, and then this one to Raquel, you're not seeing those flashes of brilliance translate into consistency in the cage. I hear a lot of yelling out of Aspen Ladd when she sets up her strikes, but she consistently comes up short, starting from too far out, and a lot of wasted movement and noise for somebody who's having a hard time channeling that version of her and maybe her greatest round there, as I mentioned, against Kunitskaya. She loses here. Look, I mean, let's be honest about where she is coming in. In a division with very little depth, and I get that one of these fights was at 145, She's one and three in her last four. If she had beaten Pennington, she's probably getting a title shot because that's just where we're at at Bantamweight. 
Sarah McMahon is, you know, over 40, but still as tough as nails, always going to be a tough out in the specific areas on the ground in which she shines. But, Luke, we're talking about put up or shut up for touchy-feely potentially for Corey Sanhagen in terms of his title implications, maybe put up or shut up. Dude, for Aspen Lad's future, it's it's now or never. And, Luke, you know you've seen her. She's aggressive. She can take you down. Her ground and pound, when motivated, is fantastic. But there is a disconnect in the wiring between the talent and potential and the execution in the cage. You know, you don't want to just automatically point at the trainer and blow that thing up because of how some people don't like their relationship. I don't care about that side of it, Luke. I care about is she getting maximized as a fighter? She's not. So I won't call this the BC Super Sloppy Wednesday special, but am I wrong? There's a lot of future implications that's going to come out of this fight that are going to either be very good or very bad for Aspen yeah, Ladd. I think you nailed it. I don't have much to add, but I would say even in that win she has over Kunitskaya... That was the one in D.C. Was that not the one, correct me if I'm wrong, and I could be wrong about this, was that not the one where her coaches had to kind of will her and she had that late surge? Yeah, that's how I described it as a minute ago, Luke. Oh, sorry, I missed that part of it. But I, I think that, I mean, even the one win, there was like the fight was slipping away is sort of the point Yeah. to, to go over here. And then she, she captured it again. You're right. All of her fights through the Eubanks fight, I was like, dude, she's on fire. Remember, when she beat Sajara Eubanks, that was fight of the night at that time. And she was undefeated all the way through eight fights. And then here we are now. Nine, she went from eight and zero to now nine and three. Um, not a great run, as you indicated. So, I, I, and by the way, McMahon. The interesting part is, well, she's you know she's uh, you know insanely well muscled. Obviously, uh, has the enormously decorated background in wrestling. But the truth about that is, like, she's been on the decline. She's a lot older. How old is Sarah McMahon? She currently sits at. I'll tell you right now, dude. She's forty one. She's forty one years old. She's, uh, she is not young. So. For Aspen Ladd, you know, you're not getting prime Sarah McMahon. You're getting a very tough version of her, but not the very best version of her. If you're going to get a win over her, and this is a perfectly good time. Who, by the way, Sarah McMahon is coming off of a win, I believe. Yes, she, she, she yeah. has over Carol Rosa. Carol Ro and she looked very good in it. And I was always critical. Like, look, I never gave Juliana Pena a lot of credit for kind of barely beating McMahon in the fight before her title opportunity. I didn't think that was the, the right setup. McMahon's won me over in her comeback fight, but isn't style-wise this the exact matchup in which Aspen Ladd's going to have to show us that she can be a beast on the feet? That's right. you got to have something for her a little bit extra. And, you know, the thing about, uh, I was going to say about McMahon is that she's been up and down. She won against Rosa. She lost against Pena. She won against Landsberg. She had two in a row against Vieira and Renault that she lost. So it's not like she's been on a consistent hot streak either, but with that wrestling, with that athleticism. And, you know, she's going to stick to a game plan, if nothing else. You need to have another gear ready to beat someone like that. They're beatable, but only if what you have, everything is lined up, you're ready to go, you've got a good game plan, you are who you say you are, right? That's a winnable scenario for uh, for Aspen Lab. But if that's not in play, then there's nothing. By the way, BC, also on this card, maybe this will get your super sloppy special uh, award, I don't know, uh, Maria Agapova, Take it on Jillian Robertson at Flyweight. You like that one? I like that one a lot because technically Agapova's lost two or three. I mean, you know, got subbed by Marina Marosh in a close competitive fight. And then, of course, had the largest upset betting wise in UFC history when, uh, was it Shayna Dobson that she did that against Luke? Mm -hmm. when she was just. Uh, so here's the deal I actually liked a lot of what I saw out of Agapova before the loss to Marosh. Um, I, I like to you know, look, look, she's got some physical advantages, the length, the quickness of that left cross. I mean, you know, there was sort of like early Yuana comparisons in her striking in terms of the intention, the intensity, the the fast rhythm of the combinations. 
I don't think all the air was let out of the balloon in the devastating loss to Dobson. I thought she rebounded well since then. But, you know, you lose here, you suddenly lost three or four. So this is a, 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 a really good opportunity against a veteran and Julian Robinson for Agapova to show us again that next level thing that got us excited when she made the graduation from the Contender Series to uh, to the UFC during the pandemic when, you know, the door was open for guys to make a big name or, or women to make a, you know, make a big opportunity out of it. Um, I still believe, Luke, do you still believe in the upper bound limits of Maria Agapova? No. I've not seen anything that would lead me to indicate that she would be able to make a run through that division. Um, she's got, you know, an interesting style and she can beat certain fighters in that division and, and I think probably have a respectable career, but have I seen anything that leads me to believe that she can contend for the very best of what that division has to offer? No, not not I've not okay. seen that. All right. Hey Luke, Luma Luke Boonmi is back at women's strawweight against Denise Gomes. And, you know, I just love her fun kickboxing style. I know it doesn't move you that much, but that's one of those fighters. Luma Luke Boonmi is on the card. I'm getting fired up, Luke. I'm yeah, I'm gonna set my alarm with, think, at, for six PM Eastern. With the, uh, she's with the Hickman brothers out of Bang Tao. I could be wrong about that, but I believe that's right. Out in Thailand. Um She's talented. I think she has had a, ran into a few rough patches. But I'm telling you, the fighter to watch on that entire prelim card is Pat Sabatini. That's the guy. Pat Sabatini is a fucking hammer. 31 years old. He's got one loss from 2020 when he wasn't even in UFC. He's had four UFC fights. He's won them all. Let's see. He beat Tristan Connolly. He beat Jamal Emers. He beat Tucker Lutz, who is from this area, who I like a lot. And then he beat TJ Laramie. Like, the dude is an absolute handful. So be on the lookout for that one. Um, okay. All right, BC, that takes us now to topic number two, which is the biggest combat sports event of the weekend by a mile. Although I got to say, we were talking about this pre-show with the staff. The buzz on this has not been what I had expected it, but Canelo Alvarez will fight Gennady Golovkin for the third time. I believe this will be a super middleweight contest, BC, at 168 pounds, if memory serves. For the MMA fans who are watching... Set this up a little bit. They're fighting for the third time. What do we need to know about the first two? What do we need to know about this matchup? Look, short of Pacquiao Marquez, this right here, Golovkin against Canelo, is the rivalry of this boxing era, right? It has been fantastic. They delivered in 2017 and 2018 two highly successful pay-per-view bouts that delivered in that mixture of having a classic title fight of of technique and, and adaptability mixed with action, aggression, and great power punching. We know about the largely disputed nature. In 2017, they fought, we all thought Triple G had done either just enough or, you know, ringside, I think I scored that 117-111, so I thought he did more than just enough. He comes away with a very disputed draw. We know about 118-110 for for, uh, Adelaide Bird. The rematch the next year was delayed by Canelo Alvarez failing a steroid test for clenbuterol, Triple G accusing him of having uh, needle insertion marks all over his body in the first fight. I mean, it got soap opera-ish. And Luke, that second fight was even better. One of the greatest fights I've ever been ringside for, I think, in this modern era, again, of a pay-per-view that delivers. I thought Triple G won seven rounds to five. I think this time people were split. You saw a lot of people, ringside media, scoring it for Canelo seven rounds to five. The difference in that rematch in 2018 was for the first time Canelo stopped committing to just being the boxer and he started to try to walk Triple G down. And what we got was incredible two-way action between two big punchers with historically great chins. But the theme heading into this third fight is like, what the hell has happened in the four years since? Well, what happened immediately after 
was HBO got out of boxing. DAZN threw a shit ton of money at both Canelo and Golovkin to essentially set up this third fight to hang their hat on, to prove their business, right? Along with Anthony Joshua, who's been there since the beginning. It never happened. Canelo wasn't that interested, blah, blah, blah. Also, obviously, Alvarez has moved up subsequently to 168 and 175 on basically a full-time basis. This will be the first fight of the trilogy at 168. All four of Canelo's belts are still on the line. And even though Golovkin is 40 years old, which has dramatically shifted the betting odds with uh, Golovkin being basically like a 4-1 to underdog in this because of how great Canelo has rose in the four years since their second fight, became the pound-for-pound king, won titles in two more divisions, right? Became the undisputed champion. There is a feeling this time like it's partially a bit of a cash-in, partially a bit of like, well, finally, DAZN got their shit together and got these two to finally make the fight. But Luke, you and I have talked about it in the last six months when this topic is brought up. Me, and I think a lot of the hardcore boxing audience, has actually turned back around. Now, in reality, look... Triple G hasn't lost since that second Canelo fight. And again, that's a very disputed loss. Does he look his age now more than ever? Yes. He's slowed down. He takes more damage than ever. But he just knocked out Ryota Murata in Japan to unify middleweight titles. He's still doing big things. There's not a lot of big buzz because neither guy is playing into the true nature of the fact that they don't like each other. In fact, Luke, they're going over the top to try to act like it's not a big deal. This fight is a major big deal for both of them. In terms of they're the, each other's biggest rival. And for Golovkin, similar to Marquez against Pacquiao, there's this feeling like he's been screwed no matter what he does each step of the way. But now he gets this one gravy chance for, for revenge and redemption. Look, I think by the time they get in the ring on Saturday, the buzz will be back. The interest will be there. And whether it is Canelo knocking him out like some people think or whether we get a third straight competitive, you know, up in the air, flip a coin on who won, it's going to be a great fight. There's no way it can't be. They've slowed down just a bit. Canelo has a much different fighter style-wise and physically since that second fight. I get it why, you know, and I think, Luke, to be honest, Canelo losing to Dimitri Bivol in May at 175, but against a fighter with a style that's very similar to what Golovkin does, I think it's kind of brought us back in. Now, if if Canelo wasn't coming off a loss, would this fight be bigger? Maybe. Maybe that's part of the reason. But s- separate from this, the promotion's ability to yank in the casual fans, you cannot be anything, I think, but fired up about this. Could you have fear that it's too little too late for Triple G? That he's just going to be set up to get stopped to the body here? Maybe. But look, neither one of these guys have been down as a pro. And you saw that second fight. They landed bombs on each other and they just kept coming it's one it's it's one of the most you know incredible manliest high technique but action fights we've seen it's hard not to drink the juice all over again and get fired up for what this fight means what it can deliver entertaining wise and also luke legacy wise dude for both of these guys it's a big deal it really is i'm fired up please don't misunderstand me but i'm just trying to understand like why there isn't a wider amount of buzz for it. I think the fact that Canelo's coming off the loss is part of it. Also, Triple G's last fight, I'm not sure how many people saw it because it was in Japan, so keep that in mind. The other thing I would say, though, is like, is there anything to be said about Matchroom and their understanding of how to promote in the American market? Is there anything to that? That's a fair point. You know, I thought they've done, you know, good to very good at times with Anthony Joshua, particularly his U.S. debut, which was supposed to be that big deal, and then... Andy Ruiz was the last-minute replacement at MSG, and we saw what happened. 
But no, Luke, to be honest, I don't really think they've done over, above, and beyond with their more U.S.-based big-name fighters. Canelo obviously being top of that list because he fights basically exclusively in the U.S. No, I don't feel like they've done a great job. And maybe they've been up against it for those reasons we mentioned, but I feel like everyone's just sort of going, this fight's this weekend? You kidding me? That's not a great thing, Luke. Will, will all the sales come in as we get closer because it's guaranteed to be a, a, a compelling fight? It might be, but no. I, I don't think, you know, if you're going to point that finger directly, it's been... I mean, look, Canelo loves being with Eddie Hearn. He purposely came back to him after the one-off on Showtime for the Caleb Plant fight. But I don't feel like this has kicked the doors in to get people excited in a way that maybe it deserves, even just on legacy alone. Like, even if you doubt that Triple G can be that same guy, this is still as big of a fight as you can make in the sport. It really is. All right, so walk me through a world where Triple G wins. How does that shake up the boxing world? You know, for him, it would be righting the wrong of not only his only defeat, but the only person. I mean, look, he's had close fights. I thought Danny Jacobs fought him to a draw. Even that win after the Canelo fights there against Sergey Derevchenko, you could argue crazy close. You could argue the other way, but look, Triple G's true Hall of Fame legacy is already established. Why? He had a twenty-three fight knockout streak in his prime. He broke the middleweight record that Bernard Hopkins had and seemed unbeatable. You know, of twenty middleweight title defenses. Just earlier this year, he unified middleweight titles. I mean, he's still going, but he is forty now. This is about that other side of his legacy, repairing the one loss, but the layers that come on top of that, the disputed judges' decisions, the steroids, the fact that, you know, he feels like the the fresher-faced money fighter got the benefit of the doubt every time, more often than not, more than he should have. Dude, if, if Golovkin at 40 can beat the guy that still gets my vote as pound-for-pound best in the game, even with that B-ball loss. I'm one of the only voters left keeping him there, and I think I'm right, by the way, at the end of the day. This would mean so much more than it would have meant in 2017 when Canelo was the smaller guy moving up in weight, and we had doubts. Like he, he made, Let's not forget, he made Triple G weight two years before the first fight for really no reason than to let him get old. But now it's like things are flipped. Now Canelo's considered the bigger man. He fought at 68 and 75 and was walking dudes down and knocking them out. He's no longer the boxer from the first Golovkin fight. It was really the second Golovkin fight that created the shift change of his style where he started coming forward. It's been a big part of why he's so stinking dangerous and I think he's the best fighter in the world. But for Golovkin, Luke, it would be the ultimate sort of FU back at parts of the boxing business that people hate. And I think that's why Triple G, who's always been a fan favorite guy, he's got corny catchphrases, right? He knocks people out. I think people, fans, the hardcore fans, have been behind this forever saying, I don't care if they're 50 when they finally make it. Triple G deserves the chance to right the wrong. And Luke, I'm going to be fair. Was that first fight a robbery? Yes. Including that I scored it, you know, nine rounds to three at ringside and subsequently seven to five. I thought it was a little closer than I realized. But here's the point. It was closer than a lot of people realize. It's just that 118-110 for Adelaide Bird just made it a, a, a mockery. The reality is that like these guys are, are as close as you can get. At least they were in that window of 2017 and 2018. Um, it's not as much of a robbery in that regard, but it, it's still going to mean something to Golovkin, who is, is a fighter's fighter. He's old school. People love this guy. Now he's got a chance to go beat the machine and beat the, the guy that he... I mean, it's, it's perfect setup for him to put a ginormous capstone on top of his already Hall of Fame legacy. All right, let's reverse the roles here. 
Now, as you indicated, Canelo is expected to win, and I do expect him to win. Walk me through a scenario where he wins and whatever, but also walk me through a scenario where he stops Triple G. What is the yeah. narrative then? You, you, I think the narrative that not many people are talking about enough here, and I hope to ask Canelo about it later today when I interview him, is really what is the the emotional reason why to take this fight right now. I do feel like he's taking it because... Not be, not necessarily because he has to. Canelo's at a different point of leverage than any other fighter in the game, to be fair, right? When you're pound for pound king and the, the biggest star membership has its benefits. But Luke, the zone's been on him for a while. He knows the fans really want this. He's also not dumb. He realizes by taking this fight, it's going to be the biggest fight he's had in years. I mean, it is. It really is because that's what this matchup means. So I think it, as you're looking at this from a betting standpoint of, and from a what does Triple G have left standpoint, I think we also have to ask ourselves what is the motivation for Canelo to find that next level. Look, I saw their face-off yesterday, Monday, uh, or during uh, in Las Vegas during like you know the pay-per-view arrivals week. It got me fired up, dude. It got me fired up. The intensity between them is you know can Canelo still dial back into that? I think certainly, but on the surface, there's not a ton to gain. With a second victory, you know, outside of shutting up people who think, you know, there was robbery or he got the benefit of the doubt. But you mentioned the the knockout, the stoppage. I think that's where the opening is to make this performance and what this would mean to his legacy something much bigger. Dude, Gennady Golovkin doesn't just have a great chin. He's got a, among one of the best, like the best chins we've ever seen. He had 350 amateur fights. And now what? You know, off the top of my head, 40-something pro fights, almost 400 fights. Dude, it's not just that he's never been knocked down. It's not just that every single interview I've ever had, going back to like 2012, I've always asked him, dude, I know you've never been down, but have you been buzzed? Have you been anything? And he always goes, nah, didn't feel it. You know, not a big deal, whatever. I mean, is that machismo? Maybe. But Luke, Danny Jacobs hit him with a combination in the end of their fight at MSG that, you know, would have knocked anybody out cold. Canelo in round nine of the second fight hit him with this right hand that was just ridiculous. And he took it and came back. Yes, he's 40. Yes, he's easier to hit. But he is an all-time legend whose only loss came against the best fighter of this era. If Canelo can go in a third time, knowing that there's not a ton to really gain reputation-wise with a win and knock this guy out, yeah, motherfucker, that's a, uh, that's a how you like me now on a second half of his career that's had nothing but those moments time and time again. So I do give Canelo respect that he never felt emotionally like there was a reason he wanted this. He was always upset at Golovkin for the steroid comments and never wanted to reward him with another fight. But just knowing what's expected of somebody as the star of the game and knowing the history between them, he has accepted this. Four years later, I get that. But he was doing other things in other divisions. It's not like he was sitting around. Um, yeah, Luke, I mean, what does the world look like Saturday, Sunday morning for you if Canelo goes in there and stops Triple G? That's crazy. I think he could undo a lot of the damage of the Bivol fight. Not that I think the Bivol fight necessarily, oh, Canelo's overrated, because to your point, he had unified completely super middleweight with that Caleb Plant victory that we were there for, I think, what was it, November of this past, or about a year ago at this point, almost nearly um, 10 months. So I think it would undo a little bit of the damage in the Bivol fight where Canelo just, you know, he pretty clearly lost that one. But it was at 175, and so what can you say? If he goes in there and stops Triple G, again, very tall order, which I'm not even sure I think he will do. I'm pretty sure he'll win, but I'm not sure what he'll do beyond that. But if he actually is able to do that, I think 
it would just end up coloring the entire trilogy where, yes, I thought Canelo lost the first one and he skated by because of some insane scorecards, but the draw stays. He won the second fight, I thought, fair and square. And forever, all the delays and whatever else in between and the bad blood to then go out there and then finally put, put the guy away, it would be as poetic a finish as Canelo could craft that there is. There, I don't know what else he could possibly do to shut the door on that rivalry, get some of the mojo back from the fight against Bivol. And BC, correct me if I'm wrong, he signed a two-fight deal with Eddie Hearn, that one being the Bivol fight and the Triple G fight. Wouldn't he be a contractual free agent yet again here after Saturday night? Yeah, unless he's added to that in ways that we don't know, which, you know... Could make him, I mean, it's always going to make a, a big bidder for his services, but you do look at, he's got a couple of divisions to pick from. Yeah, there, there's uh, this could be uh, in that regard. Look, I'm so, uh, damn, I'm fired up for this fight. Damn. Let me ask one more question, too, about this. Now, for folks might be asking, how do I watch this? It's going to be on DAZN, but it's going to be on DAZN pay-per-view because DAZN's pitch that they were the answer to pay-per-view, which is how they exclusively pitched themselves as pay-per-views dying, we're the alternative to it. One monthly fee, you don't ever have to pay again. That turned out to be a big fucking lie. Instead, you have to pay for it, even on top of having a DAZN subscription. The way it's going to work is, if you don't have DAZN, you can still get it. I think for $85, bucks, 84 99 If you are a subscriber, I pulled it up here, I am a DAZN subscriber, you can get it for $65. I got to tell you, not my favorite thing, that the DAZN lie ended up costing for consumers sure. even more in the end, but of course, and they did. wanted to, as I said, use this trilogy fight four years ago as like a launching pad of what you know free boxing could look like. It's not free, but you get my point. Um, but yeah, look. But at the same time, Luke, you're not going to argue is it deserving or the merits of it in that regard. Um, no, no. It's, if you're going to pay for a great boxing fight, this is one to pay for. Yes. Yeah, and they they have delivered throughout. And obviously, you know, we're going to get into our our detailed X's and O's preview at Friday and prediction, but. You know, there's a lot. I got a really good feature on Triple G about his mindset and game plan entering this one, about whether, you know, there is a need for drastic change in terms of maybe seeking a knockout rather than trying to box or not, based on some of the changes Canelo has made. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. But, Luke, we've also got some sound to sort of pepper in. Yeah. And, and Why don't you set some of it up? Yeah, so we talked to trainer Jonathan Banks. Uh, he was not in Gennady's corner the first two Canelo fights. That was Abel Sanchez, who trained Gennady for the bulk of his championship career. But, Luke, you look at the punch numbers from the first two fights, you know what was the, the, the giant void for Canelo? It was to the body. And that was weird because under Abel Sanchez, you know, he had developed this Mexican style, so to speak. But he was a jab-hungry headhunter against Canelo, and I think that's a big part in the second fight, why Canelo crawled back in. He dropped that trainer. He brought in Jonathan Banks. You may know him as Vladimir Klitschko's trainer on the second half of his career after Emmanuel Stewart died, Kronk Jim, all that, former fighter himself. Here's Jonathan Banks looking back at the first two fights in his opinion of what happened and you know how that may play in to the changes they need to make for fight three. Um, it's it's kind of weird because to, get, to really get into this trilogy, you know, you kind of you kind of have to to delete the first two fights. You know, the only the reason I say that is because both fighters um, are different than the first two fights. You know, um, coming into the the first fight, Canelo was known as a boxer. He was known as a mover, as a boxer, and um, and after. 
after what four years later, he's not moving. He's not moving anymore. He was a smaller guy coming in the first the first two fights. He's the he's the he's the heavier guy coming into the third fight. You know, so when you got when you got that big of a difference in um in the styles and matchups, um, then everything, everything is just everything is different. So no, it's not gonna be Canelo trying to move around no more. It's gonna be Canelo trying to get face to face and trying to and trying to cause as much pain as possible. Can I, can I ask a question, BC? These are good clips. Are we gonna go through are we gonna go through all of them? No. Okay. Um I think he's right, by the way. I think he's right that they really have to treat this differently. Why do you think he went with this particular trainer as opposed to who he had? I did ask Triple G. Uh, we won't throw to it, but essentially, you know, is he a different boxer under Jonathan Banks and sort of, you know, what was his interest there? Uh, he said it was more about wanting to get that Kronk style, wanting to really get a taste of that and a feel of that. Uh, you know, and things did break down to a certain degree, I think even financially with Abel Sanchez. Triple G hit a certain point, Luke. You know how a boxing fighter has to give a percentage of their purse to like the manager and the trainer but as they start to rise up that purse rises like a lot you know what i mean um some people thought that triple g cut the cord with the trainer and the manager at that time when he signed that 100 million dollar deal with the zone to basically say hey had a great run with you guys but i'm not raising that percentage up to this level you know I mean, I, I get that. I do want to hear from. Can we hear? Uh, the, can I set up one of the Triple G ones? Yeah, I oh, hear? go for it, Luke. Take it. Take it. I want to hear Triple G. It's the last one of the ones we have of all the clips. Triple G on. Um, actually, yes. Triple G on the scoring in the first two fights. I would love to hear what he had to say. Um, it's hard for me to say what needs to be changed. Uh, what needs to be changed? Uh, because it does not depend on me. Of course, I know that I uh, need to get in the ring and show the best of me, best of boxing, uh, best of what I have. At the same time, we're talking about uh, human factor here. Uh, we're talking about honesty, fairness, qualification of judges. Um, and um, sometimes you need to be, you know, like head and shoulders uh, over your opponent uh, to be delivered um like a victory um or like by by scoring as the last fight shown because uh you saw the scores and the scores did not reflect what we saw in the ring they were it was not as close as the short score so we're talking about human factor here we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, here's the thing about this, BC, and I get that they did it probably for financial reasons, for acclaim. There's a lot of good reasons why big fights, MMA or boxing, are in Las Vegas. T-Mobile Arena. In fact, all three fights will have been in T-Mobile Arena. There's a nice, neat history package to all of that. But BC, you know this as well as I do. If a guy feels cheated from the first fight or even the second fight or however, in this case, he does feel like he won both of them, he's back in Las Vegas. Now, I'm sure he'll have some new judges here. They're going to do their best to rotate some. out. But like, but, some is but, the key. I agree with key. you. But this is my point. It's like, don't most guys who feel like they got fucked by the judges, they don't go back uh, twice, much less three times. Here he is back to the scene of the crime. I got to say, it's a bit of a sketch move on the part of Triple G. Well, it's weird because some people called out Triple G when he was bringing up the the needle marks, you know, between the first and second fight on Canelo's body and saying the commission in Vegas knew about that. Look, it's right there. And people are like, man, this guy's being petty and ridiculous. But the reality is, as much as he's talked openly about parts of Canelo's response and personality that he feels is not professional and not sportsmanlike, he has, like you said, gone back into the same you know den and, and done it. Third time at T-Mobile Arena, third time in Las Vegas, despite the, I don't want to say questionable scoring in both because that second fight is disputed. It's not questionable. It's basically, who did you prefer? Yeah, and there also, if you listen to this extended interview, Luke, there's a lot of me asking, like, do you have to alter your strategy dramatically? Do you have to say F you to the judges? And maybe somewhat surprisingly, his answer was more in the direction of no. Of almost like, this is what I do, and this is what I do very good, and this is my best chance to win, and you know the judges will be what they will be, yet in the same breath, a couple minutes later, he's basically saying, for whatever reason, you know they chose not, they, they purposely chose not to give me the fight. So he's believing in the corruption, but to your point, in some ways not doing anything about that. Now, would it work? What if he publicly paraded and said, I'll take the fight, but only in Los Angeles, or only in wherever? Maybe, or maybe to him, Luke, it's not really about that. He doesn't tend to make excuses. He'll give you the truth about the corruption he feels is rampant, but he never gives excuses necessarily about the loss, which I respect. So when you look at this third fight and, you know, and debate as we will on Friday, whether he should alter his strategy, dude, there is familiarity with the judges. Now, the good news is that both Dave Moretti and Steve Weisfeld are two of the most respected judges in the game today, which is why for Vegas super fights, you see them all the time. Weisfeld of the six scorecards in this series, only one went to Golovkin. That's not Weisfeld. It's, um, it's uh, Dave Moretti. He scored it 115-113 Golovkin the first fight. He scored the second fight 115-113 in favor of Canelo. Now, Weisfeld also did the second fight. He scored it 115-113 in favor of Canelo. The third judge, I forgot his name. It's not in front of me. He is uh, first time for either guy. But so, Luke, the, you could ask in that same regard, it's like the same guys. Russell Moore is going to be the ref first time in the series, but the refs haven't really played a monster role. You you can criticize after the fact, especially if he goes in there and loses another decision that where you're like, OK, dude, you know, is this the definition of uh, of, of what he what's what's the phrase, Luke? Uh, insanity. Is Insa- insanity. Yeah, is this insanity in front of us playing out? I don't know. But, Luke, uh, interestingly enough, both Moretti and Weisfeld, they judged also the Canelo-Bivol fight, and both of them scored it seven rounds to five in favor of Bivol. So they've been fair. They've been consistent. Um, Yeah, we'll get into it on Friday, what kind of changes Triple G has to make. But I do have one more uh, interesting sound, Luke, if a lot of us are wondering, you know, what can Team Triple G glean from that Bivol loss? Did they see holes in Canelo's game? Let's hear Jonathan Banks wrap that point up. 
Maybe. Um, after after Hopefully. seeing the two fights with G and Canelo, um, what B, what Bivar did, um, G and Bivar are two completely different fighters, completely different, like night and day difference. And um, what Bivar did, I actually felt G did the first fight. That's what that's that's my honest opinion. I said that's exactly how I think Bivar took something from G. So G don't have to yeah. take nothing from Bavar. That's that that's how I look at it. I think Bavar looked at the first fight and he said, shit, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna use my jab. Because every time I use my jab, Canelo head go back. The only difference is one got one got scored for it and the other one didn't. Who's who? I'm not saying, but yeah, you get the point. <laughs> you get the point. But, you know, I get but, it. Right, but that that's what I'm saying. That's why, you know, I can say like I didn't get nothing from it is because he took what G did the first fight and just outboxed him. He, I he just let his hands go and outworked him. It was yeah. it was a pretty simple it was a pretty simple task. Well, Luke, that clip was supposed to have a joke on the front of it that would have made it make a lot more sense. But anyway, we got it. Those interviews are available, youtube.com slash morning combat. I hope you caught that little throw in there, Luke, the idea of like, you know, whether he slowed down or not, the key to victory for Triple G against Golovkin has always been live and die behind that jab. That is what Bivol did. So um, we'll see if they decide to, to, to stay in that lane one more time. And maybe live out the definition of insanity, as we're mentioning, as uh, trying to outbox and outjab the number one fighter in this game. We'll see. All right, topic number three. I don't have a whole lot to say about this, but it is an interesting development. One, I suppose, I did not see coming. Anthony Joshua apparently has agreed to Tyson Fury's terms. Listen to this from the T uh, 258 MGT account, which I guess is the promotional or the management company for Anthony Joshua. Quote, um... 258 and Matchroom Boxing can confirm on behalf of Anthony Joshua that we have accepted all terms presented to us by Fury's team for a December 3rd fight last Friday. Due to the Queen's passing, it was agreed to halt all communication. We are awaiting a response. BC, is this something to actually get excited about or is this some boxing bullshit? Uh, it sounds like it might be because, you know, look, uh, separate from my idea of like, I love this fight. I've always wanted this fight. But I do want this fight to be for, you know, all the belts and make it as big as possible. I don't want it shoehorned in before Usyk's ready in March to have the dream fight we've been salivating over. Separate from that, is it still a big event no matter what? Of course it is. Although in this case, it would be Anthony Joshua coming off consecutive losses, which again questions the, the motives here. I'm seeing publicly Joshua saying we've accepted your terms. So if money's not going to be an issue, Luke, and we know that the, the promoters, while they're not aligned with the same networks... If Joshua's going to fight Fury, then DAZN and ESPN are going to get in the same room and make it work. It's just what it is, right? Yeah, this makes me feel like it's going to happen, Luke. Um, do you have any issues with it happening now like I do? I just don't want that to take that. Why would you take that risk? Isn't this fight no. so much bigger after the Usyk fight? I think at this point, trying to get them to fight in just the right order or at just the right time seems like a waste. Um, the, the, the events have played out have they, how they have played out. God only knows how many more fights Tyson Fury has. I know he's flirted with retirement and come out of it a million times, but at some point it will stick. And for Joshua coming off the Usyk loss, what, is he, what other fight is he going to take 
to rebound that would be, be even remotely as interesting. You could say Deontay Wilder, but Wilder's got the fight against Hellenius. We don't know how that's going to go. I would agree that I would love to see also a Deontay Wilder taking on uh, a Joshua fight. You can't do Ruiz because I don't think Anthony would take it. He has the win over the, in the comeback and the rematch. Why risk for a third one? There's no Luis Ortiz fight, no Areola fight. It could what be a Luis do? Ortiz Kovnatsky fight at this point. Pulev. Who, I mean, who are you going to do? Who could you, you could fight? do a Luis Ortiz fight? He's he's available. Fuck that. Who wants to see that shit? They're come both on, get coming out of off here. losses. Uh, he's he. You know, come on, dude. Do you really going to tell me that's as exciting and interesting to you, Luis Ortiz uh, over Tyson? Certainly and not. Fury? Uh, so you're saying to me like, stop being romantic about it. Like if we get it, be fucking happy we get it. Listen, okay. I think in I think in I think what you're talking about is hey, wouldn't it be better if it was structured in a certain kind of way? To which I have no answer. I think you're 100 percent right in that circumstance. Yeah. But in the messy world of boxing, it often seems to me more like if you can strike while the iron is hot, do it. Just do it, and it well, won't you, be neat. It won't be clean. Anthony Joshua could get a third loss consecutively. He could get stopped in this fight. God only knows. But if you're going to do it, I don't know when the better time is going to be given the set of circumstances and just a sort of political. Am I alone? I guess I'm alone in this. And when I say this, I mean, what's my fear? Well, obviously that that if you take a fight like this dangerous, right, this this close before the idea of doing that undisputed fight next year, it's like, well, you're risking injury. You're risking loss. You're risking a lot of things. Am I the only one who thinks given Tyson Fury's recent nature that he could go out there and stop Anthony Joshua and then be like, peace, guys. And it might not be like I'm leaving forever, but it might be like going to go take a long break, going to fight that mountain man, going to wrestle again, going to try to get Ngannou in there. Yeah, maybe I'll do that undisputed thing down the road. Dude, down the road's not going to be there for us knowing boxing. So am I, the, I guess I'm the only one that has that fear, knowing the business avenues available to Fury and how quickly he does seem to bounce back and forth into like being serious or walking away. I mean, okay, what if Joshua upset him and then we go to a rematch with them? I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be against that either. It's a great fight, but, dude, we're so damn close, and the sport is always has these bullshit booby traps around every corner, Luke. Don't become a bullshit booby trap, right? Yeah, but I, it's hard to call anything. If they can do here's what I here's the only question I have. How the fuck is this fight moving along and we don't have an announcement yeah. for uh, Crawford and Spence? That's what I can't get around. Where the hell is that announcement, man? I yeah. am dying to see if they can make that fight. Still no news. Still no news. Um, but no, I'm not. I don't nearly have the same concerns. I understand your concerns given your longevity in the sport and how important it would be to have it under a more ideal and, and frankly better set of conditions. My, my, it's a much better set of conditions what you have offered. But shit, I mean, dude. also, Luke, also we're, we're in what, mid-September right now? They're talking about doing this fight in like, December. you know, the first week of December. So like just over two months. This fight's too big to have a two-month promotion. It just is. Wouldn't you want these two on a media tour where they're going back and forth at each other? Then wouldn't you want it to mean something? Meaning Joshua had just knocked somebody out to reclaim his, Yeah, but if you're going to put this in the UK, like Pacquiao, I mean, that's not the same thing as Pacquiao Mayweather. I understand that. It's not the same thing. But for that UK market, it's fucking huge. Tyson Fury can't come over here anyway, however long that's going to be in play. That's fair. That's fair. And the other part, too, is, dude, if they miss this window... Do you really believe there's going to be another great window in which to make this fight? I have to tell you, I don't think that there would be. I think Tyson's got a little bit left in him, and that's it. If Fury still wants to fight, then you would you would fight. Essentially, this is what would happen. Fury would go in there against Usyk in, like, April. He'd probably beat him. I think he would. Probably. And then you'd go, what's the next big fight? Oh, I know, defending all, making the first 
undisputed four belt title defense against the former champion and you know biggest star in the heavyweight game and Anthony Joshua and we're going to do it in a stadium and he will have just had knocked somebody out and he's back and dude yeah that's bigger it's bigger that's bigger that's better but that's not in any way a guarantee there's nothing guaranteed in this business okay but it's like oh now you want to fight each other you guys could have fought each other the last four or five years would have been great right like no I mean come on I agree with that I mean they fucked around and waited till a point where now we're we're dealing with you know suboptimal outcomes but even those suboptimal outcomes are still pretty great um i still want to see this in ways that perhaps you don't um given the timeline anyway all right topic number four we got some mma quick hitters bc we'll go through these pretty quickly here uh first up the nevada athletic commission is going to investigate the ufc 279 press conference altercation by the way they're going to investigate the the press conference this is me taking the uh, nevada athletic commission very seriously yeah look i want to hit this up to you because even though I, I played the simpleton role on oh, Monday, can I just read this quick quote from the uh, commissioner? Oh, I didn't question. know you had more. Why don't you go J- for just it? Just a quick question. This is this is from the chairman Stephen Klubeck. Quote: If the Nevada Athletic Commission determines that licensees acted improperly, we will initiate appropriate disciplinary action against all involved. Although trash talking between competitive athletes is common, any escalation into physical altercations may discredit the sport of unarmed combat. Oh yeah, word, and is wholly unacceptable. They're not going to do fucking shit, but okay. Yeah, right. And the UFC ain't going to do shit either. Do you remember they rewarded McGregor for the Dolly incident with the biggest fight of all time? Of course not. Luke, when I played Simpleton and said, look, I technically don't believe this was a conspiracy this past weekend. And I know Dana White is hammering Shab up on, on all the uh, press conferences for believing that. But like anyone with a podcast, you you know, I threw out, hey, what if? The what if part it that It wasn't people... like you were too far away from from that worldview, by the way. Well, were, I wasn't. Like, I wasn't under the belief. adjacent. I wasn't under the belief that like six or eight people were involved. I was just thinking maybe they thought, hey, why are we going to do Nate dirty here when we want him to come back in a year after a Jake Paul fight and fight Connor anyway? That's what I'm thinking. And then they go, you know, whatever. The thing that people got upset was that we weren't willing, while in the conversation of conspiracies, to go, hey, how about that video package that came out? Remember it was supposed to be a 50-on-30 brawl backstage that also included Diaz's team? Luke, mm-hmm. that interview, that the package they put out didn't show shit. So it didn't show shit. I agree. Like, you're going to cancel a press conference because of that? That happens on stage at almost every ceremonial weigh-in. And I you don't love know, it. I don't know what happened and what didn't happen. It's the magic of editing and what they chose to even put in there. I did speak to three different people, by the way, who all have different jobs. They don't even work in the same industry for the same people. I mean, the same industry, but very different people and very different roles in the industry, I should say. And all three said it was a melee. All three okay. said it was a melee. So take that for what it's worth. So is this um, is this li- literally one of those rare moments where people did not have their cell phone out in time to capture the start of it? Um, do we is it is it too much to ask if the if the MGM Grand Garden Arena had cameras back there, Luke? The question is, do we have access to them? Do we have access to them? I mean, did you see that? Uh, did you see the the documentary on the the perceived conspiracy behind part of the uh, Country Music Fest Las Vegas shooting, Luke? No. They're the same question abounded about security footage, by the way. Um, all right, so... Um, they're not going to do shit, is the answer. Okay, so, but, but there, you were oh, on the There was the other conspiracy about, hey, did you see Hamzat? And I can't quite tell exactly what the nature of the conspiracy is, but that basically Kevin Holland was going... Remember they touched gloves yes. before the fight? Yes. And then they go to touch gloves, and you see Chemayev go with high hand and then shoot low. To me, this is the absolute dumbest fucking controversy on Earth. Exactly. Because Going high-low is not only a common strategy and a common feint. It's literally exactly what he did. 
against the leech. So I don't know if the argument is, oh, well, he was doing it while his hand was high. But like, if you're already in motion for it, or you're already intending to do it. It's coincidental. And also, they already touch gloves. Like, what the fuck? Like, no, you there's nothing. It. The only people who are mad about this are simpletons. They, they probably like Thor Love and Thunder. Nobody hates this conversation more than ESPN's Joe Tessitore, who had a very famous viral boxing soundbite on Friday Night Fights where he's like, you just touch gloves. Why do you got to touch again? Yeah, I hate when, when you touch gloves before every round or whatever. Look, even if Chemayev was being, you know, dirty here, dude, how many times do we got to touch gloves? We're fighting. It's in game. It's to protect yourself at all times, which is why even if you, you know, got mad at Floyd Mayweather for knocking out uh, Victor Ortiz that time with that sucker punch, it's like, what else do you want? That guy just led with his head and a headbutt, and now he's trying to hug the guy. Like, it, it's a fight. Fight. But I don't even think that was part of the idea, because I think that's what Chamaya was going to do anyway. So that part is stupid to me, Luke. But you know what's not stupid to me, Luke? I mean, like, when the Dolly shit happened, they had all these camera angles, and they used it as, like, the main centerpiece to sell that fight over and over again. Mm-hmm. I, I have to believe they have access to better footage that would have better sold the idea that Chamaya sure and Holland... We're in a war that was so crazy that other people got. No, I don't. That's the thing I don't believe. So I'm not going to. I'm. Don't put me. Don't Alex Jones me, Luke. Okay. I'm just saying there's there are some unexplained holes in this plot. That's sure. all I have to say. No, I agree. I would agree with that. I, I think what they've shown doesn't show a melee. But I'm just there's enough corroborating evidence at this point for me to conclude that they're not doing a fucking scam. I mean, would you? Uh, what would you actually think if I see, was? We have right? a lot more to get to. Yeah, but Luke, I I I have this obsession with dynamic showmaking. I know. So then you should have done the looked at the rundown ahead of time and been on the show on time, but you weren't. This so is we topical. It's connected, but keep it going, Luke. Okay, because you have you have what they call a salty ass, Luke. Okay, you know what I mean. I mean, you just want to do a show forever. Like let's you know, the question along. is, how did all that salt get in there? You know what I mean, Luke? Okay, here you go. There it Hot is. Hot sauce. Hot sauce. All right. Uh, Dana White provides an update on UFC Africa. Why are they calling it UFC Africa? It's like Africa's a fucking continent. Is there a UFC Europe? But whatever. Uh, not as a, an event, obviously as an idea or a company. Uh, Dana at UFC 279 talking about it. Quote, we literally were just having a meeting the other day and we're seriously talking about Africa now. We're starting to look at venues and cities to hold an event. So Africa is going to happen very soon. Yes, but what part? South Africa, Sub-Saharan, the Arab North? Like what part is it going to be? Kinshasa in? Zaire, Luke. How about that? Look, if there was... Look, no, nothing will be bigger than Ali Foreman, right? You know, in, in, the, uh, in Zaire there. But... If you had to concoct a UFC fight, given that you've got three prominent names that were born in Africa and all that, but you wanted to have a fight that would, like, on paper is so potentially legendary that it would give you poor, poor man's rumble in the jungle feels, would you do Nganu versus John Jones for the title as that fight to headline UFC Africa? Yeah, you could, but they'd probably put, us in, put it in some place like Johannesburg, which would be, like, technically Africa, but not yeah. really a related part in that sense. Um Hakeem Dermish, our colleague at CBS, Luke, he's from Libya. I'd like to see his home nation get a, get a big opportunity here, okay? Yeah, I'm not sure if that's coming anytime soon, okay. but we'll have to see. <laughs> uh, if you're uh, if you're easy to make laugh, this will be something that you care about. Hasbulla has apparently inked a five-year contract with the UFC to promote events from Igor Lazorin, who I guess really? is related to him. I didn't uh, read has, this in the rundown. I must have missed this part of the rundown. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Hasbulla has apparently signed a five-year contract with UFC so far in the plan, attending tournament, tournaments, media tournaments. Are we sure this is real? 
We will not talk about the amounts in detail, but they are such that many fighters do not get that much. Wow. I don't, is this real? This is a are, we, are we doing fake news here? We this is a this? direct response to PFL flying Tiger King to Europe for all those fights, Luke. Shouldn't the, <laughs> shouldn't the smart King. cage have realized it's not a Tiger good investment? King. Tiger you know? King's in fucking jail. Who did I say? Liver King. That's what I said. Liver Who'd King, you? yeah. Who did I say? Tiger King. Tiger King? Oh, yeah, that's Joe. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still follow him on IG, Luke. Shout out to the Tiger King. Uh, yeah, Luke, um, if it's true, it's it's not, a, it's not a not smart move. I mean, Luke, he's got cachet in this industry. He's feuding with you fighters. Think, you think he's got he, five years left of punching, he punching Okay, people five years is asking a lot. Like, he might die I mean, die he's got five months five, left you know. of that. I do think that, left. like... When he's cage side, Luke, yeah, I kind of like. I don't hate it. And the, you know what I'm saying, Luke? He and he's like the he's mini me. He's like central casting for Dana White to have like a sidekick mini me who won't take his shit or punch him in the balls. They should get a reality series, actually, Luke, and put I it just on think UFC Fight Pass. This is just for like people who don't want to admit that they still find like little people stuff funny. And Luke, I you guarantee get, you, Hasbula would have jumped a, off that cliff. You get away with it. You I get away with it because Hasbula is in on it, and he just acts like a jerk to everyone. Everyone's like, "Yay, this is funny," but it's not that funny. Put um, him and Dana in a reality show. Go to the Why Am I Bay, Luke. You'll find out who the real man is in there. Okay. <laughs> I bet. I bet Hasbula jumps. I bet he jumps. Yeah. Uh, all right. We got uh, a fight here booked for Bellator two eighty nine. Liz Carmouche will take on Juliana Velasquez in a title rematch, which, by the way, is the right fight to make because yeah. Velasquez got stopped, but to me it was way too early ref intervention. I mean, is it rude for me to say I don't recognize this title reign until I see her actually beat her because of the way that was stopped no. in the situation? I completely agree. It's no it's no disrespect to Liz Carmouche. No, who's she on a didn't nice stop little the fight. It's not, it's not her fault. She didn't do anything wrong. She And by the way, she was winning in that moment and had some good moments in the fight. But Absolutely. Way too early. Way too early. All right. Also, yeah. go ahead. No, you nailed it, Luke. Keep nailing it. All right. Sean Strickland, Jared Cannonier was supposed to happen, then, it, but then his finger got infected, so they had to rebook it. This will be on the UFC Fight Night on December 17th. So they are going to fight the two guys who fought at UFC 276 and then lost, I believe. I think that's what it was. And then subsequent to that, here we are. All right. Uh, BC topic number five. We wrap up on this. Some boxing quick hitters. This one was a surprise to me. I got to tell you, I didn't really didn't really blow my skirt up. Lomachenko was well, we back. It. Yeah, we talked yeah, about it on the show when it was being rumored. Go ahead, Luke. Okay, but it's Lomachenko versus Jermaine Ortiz set for October 29th, same day as Jake Paul and Anderson Silva. This will be a 12-round main event at the Hulu Theater in Madison Square Garden. I don't really care about this fight, BC. Am I wrong? Yes and no. So the reality is, considering he's been off for a year and he's been actually in wartime... Him coming back against an unbeaten guy who retired former champion Jamel Herring in his last fight. The fight before that, Luke, he headlined Showbox and he looked spectacular. So it's not that Jermaine Ortiz wouldn't, isn't at this level where he would deserve a comebacking fight where Lomachenko's trying to, like, you know, shake off the rust and then get back in a big title fight. It's just surprising because Lomachenko, he doesn't do stuff like this. He's always, look, he's so willing to fight the best available. Or you remember the story he wanted to fight for a title in his pro debut, but no promoter could secure it. So he went with Bob Arum because Bob said, I'll do it in your second fight, which he lost, kind of got screwed, comes back, wins a title in his third fight. Then suddenly he's like a three-division champion through 12 fights. He doesn't do stuff like this. Jermaine Ortiz is a hungry young fighter. I've called this fights. He's good. But here's two parts I don't like about this, Luke. 
Jermaine Ortiz did get, did get dropped twice by uh, Joseph Adorno in a draw in Showbox last year. And number two, these two were sparring partners like a year and a half ago. So doesn't it just optically, doesn't it feel like Loma's purposely going a little bit softer than normal, even though I'm not trying to say he doesn't deserve that, I'm saying that's not who he normally is, right? I think that's fair. I think that's fair. It's just, I, I'm not even bashing Lomachenko. I don't know what was available. He wants to stay active. I'm not mad at that. I just don't find it a very compelling fight. I that's agree all. with that. But, you know, Lomachenko fighting anyone, Luke, still must see TV. Still matters I agree with that. to me. Yeah, for sure. And again, they're not putting it at the big MSG. It's just the Hulu Theater. I'm sure it's going to air on ESPN regular, so no big deal. Uh, Devin Haney, by the way, BC, has called for a fight against Tank Davis. He yes. told the boxing voice, quote, the fight has been built up for years. At the end of the day, if he wants to fight, he can have the fight. He's been the WBA fake champion. He has the Mickey Mouse belt. If he wanted to become my mandatory, he can become my mandatory. All he got to do is go hit uh, Gilberto uh, and tell him, hey, we want to make this fight happen. He can become the mandatory whenever he wants. I mean, it all starts with George and how that plays out. But obviously, if it makes sense, then that's uh, the much bigger fight. Then that's the fight we would really be focused on. But right now, George is the guy. We can't look past him. Interest in a Devin Haney versus Tank Davis. Oh, of I course. would say of Ryan course. Garcia, I'm more interested in seeing, but Devin Haney right behind him. Well, look, if Devin Haney has all four lightweight world titles, which he does right now, and that's, you know, at stake in this, you might you might even put that right now to the top of the line. Look, I want to see Tank versus Ryan Garcia. There's so much star power, so much unknown, vulnerability, all that, like anybody. This is actually a better fight and probably the fight until Shakur Stevenson formally moves up to 135 that will decide who's the best fighter at this weight class. Because Teofimo's out, Ryan Garcia, we have more questions than we do these other guys. I'm happy that they're just talking about it, Luke, because we know Haney has to get through with that mandatory rematch with Cambosis, which is looking like a money grab at this point. I hope Cambosis fights a different style and goes for it. But I think, it, Luke, if Haney wins and if Tank fights whoever he's hoping to fight in December, I'd love, love it, love it to be Ryan Garcia. These two next year for all four belts, regardless of what promoter or network they're with, it's got to happen. So, yeah, I want all these guys to talk about each other because let's be the new era that all fights each other regardless of the system behind us, Luke. Let's be that guy, okay? I think we got a few of that guy right now, and I want to see them mashed up together. All right. And then uh, last but not least, BC, how much do you care? Mayweather has reportedly been in talks to fight KSI's brother. On November thirteenth, I just don't give a shit. Is it on a helipad? In I don't know, Luke. I, I mean, you know, it, it, it is. By the way, the is. staff is telling us that it's real that Hasbulla has signed a deal with UFC. So God bless him; he's going to make money. And if you're a cheap laugh, you're going to continue to do what you do. I wonder if that smart cage is actually a UFC spy <laughs> operative underneath, Luke. Like it's been programmed to sort of like so anything they're talking about in the you know Dana's like fuck the Liver King but Hasbula we need it we got to get him if, if I mean, the smart cage ain't that smart he can't like double their ratings which they could really use you know what I mean like yeah but they both fight, both promotions fight on ESPN I wonder if it's like the same like hourly union rig guy that Dana called in the office gave him a Nelk Boys bag and then was like program that smart cage to air all audio live in my office it's possible. <laughs> Unlikely, but certainly possible. Uh, that's it for us on this one. Although, BC, I've got to remind folks, we have more bills to pay. We want to turn back the clock, BC. For some, it's vanity. Others, just to relive, relive those glory days. For me, I would love to wake up every morning with zero brain fog, a clear wow. mind, and be as, as energized as when I was younger. And thanks to first person, I can take a more active role in my brain's overall health. Yeah, I'm a big first person fan here, Luke. It's an innovative 
precision targeted cognitive supplement system, which uses the brain boosting medicinal benefits of mushrooms. Yes, those to activate the full potential of human cognition and brain health. And look, you know how much psychedelics are now being used for medicine in this era. X fighters. I mean, this is the direction we're going to health, Luke. I've never taken this, but apparently uh, first person supplements made with functional mushrooms aim to stimulate the body's natural production of specific neurotransmitters that trigger activities like energy, mood, and my favorite, sleep. Yeah, and first person uses 100% grain-free organic mushrooms as well as highly a highly curated blend of nutraceuticals sourced from the best in-class vendors. Uh, I this this is what it tells me. I personally like the Sunbeam supplement. I've never had it to help with motivation and focus. I have found myself to be much more productive on this thing I've never had and able to stay focused throughout a long day. Well, I have had it, and I can stand by it, Luke. And you too, MK viewer, can start improving your brain health and cognition right now with first person. So here's the deal. Get 15% off your first order by going to getfirstperson.com and use our code COMBAT with a K. Again, that's G-E-T-F-I-R-S-T-P-E-R-S-O-N.com, code COMBAT. 15% off your first order, getfirstperson.com. Code combat. All right, BC, we have much more show to do. It's a long one today, so let's get to it. We're going to do, again, what we liked doing these before. It got some traction. We're going to try it again. Let's go to our top five segment. This time, we're going to do top five favorite MMA fights. Now, let's be clear about this. BC, if I'm getting any of this wrong, tell me if I'm getting it wrong. Top five? Top five. These are just the five that either you like the most for your own reasons yes. or I like the most for my own reasons. These are not the five biggest. These are not even me necessarily saying that they're the five best. Like if I had to rank the very best fights, where would I put these? These are just the ones that I like a lot, have sentimental value, rewatch value, just the ones that you really, really like. Thank you for nailing that because you and I didn't get into a long argument about this yesterday for nothing, Luke. I like to avoid the viewers not really having a clue of what we're ranking. Oh, you guys think that's the best fight of all time? No. see, here's no. what happened. You didn't this, this like the favorite. topic that I had suggested, and then you play this weird game like you don't, you pretend to not get it. As like a result, I don't well, just pretend to not get like it, Luke. I'm eliminating all one. questions, dude. You, you're full of shit, but it's okay. We move to one you like. How am I full of it. shit, Luke? It it prevents situations like it going on social with the wrong heading, and then people are going, "Oh my god, that your, was your favorite striker list would have been great in 2012." It's like, well, listen. this is the fucking list, bro. So, so right? social did fuck that up. I agree. Okay, with but you like here. that's why I put in these safeguards, Luke. All right. I mean, you were in the military. You know a lot of standard yeah, operating I know. procedures. I think you just oh, pretended bullshit. to not understand, so we could do a different one. Which no, is fine. So I want to do are. the best show possible, and you're just like, you know, I, I only work Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So you know, <laughs> that's that is so not what happened. All right, uh, but Luke is right. These go are first. the sentimental values. Five. Go first. We got to go. All right, number five. You can argue, Luke, that I would. Fill my list with women's strawweights, but number five is my favorite women's strawweight fight of all time. With much love and respect to the Ioana Whaley Zhang all-time great brawl, my number five took place at UFC 223, April of 2018. You can see the, the damn poster behind me, and this may surprise you. It was the five-round title rematch for the 115 belt between Ioana Young Jacek, the former champion, and Rose Namajunas, uh, making the first title defense. This was high-speed chess at its finest, and I don't think people recognize this fight enough in the in this in this you know modern era of the best fights. No, it's not going to end up being in that top five because it's not this back and forth all-time great brawl. But in terms of a 
a high stakes technical masterpiece. I love the fight that they showed. Why? Because in the first fight, we got surprised when Yuana Young Jacek was knocked down with the first strike that she that she faced and knocked out shortly after that. There was a lot of talk about the bad weight cut and the the turmoil in her personal life and her camp that bled into her camp before that. But if she was going to be the boogie woman, if Yuana was going to be the all time great that she is today, she was going to have to man up, woman up, excuse me, and come back and and show us longevity, a long game plan, and something different. And the way that she responded to this version of Rose, who is, you know, it may not be first round against Andrade version of Rose, but it's as good as you'll find in her great career. Uh, they meshed so perfectly in ways we didn't find out in the first fight because of the all-action ending in round one. And that perfect mixture of skill, precision, adaptability, you know, high pace, I know this gets lost in the Habib Dolly situation, and I got a great, you know, Max Holloway poster here, and it became Ally Aquinta in the end. But this fight could have main evented Rose Yoana too and saved that card. And to me, it did, in fact, at the end of the day, Luke. I love this fight. It's very rewatchable, and it's my favorite division, the two greatest fighters that ever had at their very peak against one another. Dig it. I'm, I'm glad you put that on there. I struggled about whether I was going to put that on there or not. Again, these are my favorite. These are not me saying the very best, just the ones I like the most. I had the most fun with, I think about often, impactful. So for number five, I'm going to go Dan Henderson versus Shogun Hua, UFC 139. This was... A fight, I remember when they booked this fight, I remember thinking to myself, BC, I'm like, I'm not really sure how this is going to go. Dan Henderson had the H-bomb. You know, Shogun was battle-tested, but even back then, this was all the way in 2011, we were wondering, like, I don't know, man. He looks like a little weathered. He looked weathered from the moment he went over to the UFC to begin with. And then, of course, he had the Force Griffin loss. And he he redeemed himself later, but you get the idea. Like, he was not the same as the guy who had fought in Pride. And sure enough, Dan Henderson goes in there and blows the fucking doors off of him for three rounds. I couldn't believe Shogun Hua managed to hang on. I couldn't believe the fight got there. And then in the fourth round, Shogun Hua does what can only be described as something bordering on impossible and then returns the favor for two more rounds, achieving mount where he is pounding on Dan Henderson high in mount. Somehow it goes all the way to a decision and Dan Henderson gets his hand raised. I thought fairly he had done more through the first three, but if you want to look at like two, at the time they weren't super old, but there were, you know, veterans in the fight game, to be very clear, beat the living shit out of each other in ways you can't believe that one guy hangs on only for the tie to completely turn the other direction. This is one of the most underrated brawls in UFC history. It doesn't get labeled that way, but it really should. It doesn't get that way because you know, it was Henderson and Shoguns, these guys who were various champions and, and the most important you know, organizations in that time through Pride and Strike Force and everything else. UFC for Shogun. Um, super, super sick fight that, at least in terms of entertainment value, BC, holds up. And I also think Shogun Hua, I didn't even think at this time had this kind of resiliency in him to take the H bomb in the way that he did. And he yeah. did. And then to turn it around, Shogun Hua, in a losing effort, this is one of the most impressive performances. You'll ever see in a losing effort, if for no other reason than uh, unbelievable resiliency from both. And the fact that he was Shogun. still Shogun was still fighting killers, just like you know, six months ago is is crazy. But Luke, it's I think there's about three or four, maybe five at the most, where if someone, if you ask somebody, what's the best fight in UFC history or MMA history, and they said that fight, you wouldn't have an argument, you wouldn't have a snarky response. This is on that list, and if you have this as as your number one, like. 
You might be right. You might be right. It might be. Look, it's. It, I think it might be the most brutal fight. You know what I mean? In terms of total it's, accumulation of damage oh, yeah. by both. I mean, the amount of... See, I'm being dead serious. Like The amount of brain damage that these two took in this fight is probably not great. Probably I mean, it's great. it's got Rory Lawler levels of just brutality where you're like, damn. But, uh, yes. it, you know, it, I, I'd love to say it took, you know, the rest of their careers off of them, but both went on to author, you know, not action fights better than this, but a ton more action fights because they're subhuman, you know, uh, robots that are just, I mean, these are, these are, this is probably, I'll close with this, the manliest fight, meaning man versus man, big reputation, and then they both leaned on every ounce of that man in them to get to the finish line. Um, It's raining men that night, Luke. Hallelujah. All right. What do you got for number four? (laughs) Good. Bad sell job. All right, Luke, let's go to number four. Uh, you and I have praised this up before when it came under the Nick Diaz resume review. Why do I want to be a, at least part-time member of the Nick Diaz army and love and appreciate what they do for fights like this? UFC 49, August of 2004, Caro Parisian versus Nick Diaz. Luke, to me, there are different kinds of fights that are great, right? There's high-speed chess technical fights. There's all-out wars. But this is my favorite fight from the old UFC. The one that was finally, you know, getting traction and eventually through Forrest Griffin and Stephen Bonner won and all that. They, they really started to gain traction. But that era of UFC, were all, they were still street fights. The difference was you had what was becoming a generation of skilled street fighters. But at the end of the day, even if you're a technician, you still had to fight through shit to win those fights. Carl Parisian and Nick Diaz, where both have action fights that may all, you know, go all time as better, including Paul Daly against Nick Diaz in Strike Force. But this fight, when they matched up, I caught it at the right time. Um, in a lot of ways, this fight re- reinvigorated my love for UFC because I had fallen off, you know, came on early like everybody else on pay per view when it was Faces of Death and then slid off a little bit in those weaning years when it wasn't even on TV. This was a, I remember what it felt like. I remember what I was, you know, where I was sitting and all that because it was gripping dynamic television because even though they're skilled and even though both made adjustments and they, they, they had to be bone tough to get there and they were. Um, what a just classic fight. If I'm going to UFC Fight Pass, which I often do when I'm, you know, killing time in, in, in row eight, Luke, I've watched this fight without question more than any other over and over again i love it and i know you do too yeah none of your choices i hate i liked all of them i think all of them are great for number four for me i'm going to go with the very last fight in wec history benson henderson versus anthony pettis wec 51 this was in december of 2010 there's actually a lot of controlling grappling in this fight if you look at the stats particularly for the second and through the fourth rounds there's not a lot of strikes thrown. There's a lot of control time that was amassed either against in the clinch or someone having a dominant grappling position. Uh, Benson Henderson getting a, a lot of takedowns in the first round, but the fight kind of began, the tension certainly began to escalate over the course of this fight. And the reason why it was important is because it was really a dynamic contest throughout. But this is the famous Showtime kick fight. We're in the fifth round of the last WEC fight in the last WEC event. This is it. This is the last moment. And the words of Stefan Bonner, uh, Anthony Pettis ran off the wall like a ninja, kicked Benson Henderson in the face, dropped him, and then proceeded to uh, you know put an exclamation point on the fight and get the win. Stuffing enough takedowns where he didn't lose the contest, not giving up enough grappling positions to lose. Benson Henderson doing his kind of thing where he's, you know, 
gas pedal to the floor the entire time. This, again, this is before these guys ever even got to the UFC. They put on a fucking masterpiece of a closing show. You could argue about whether it's not it's the best WEC fight. There are some other ones you could have picked along the way. Miguel Torres versus Takeo Mizugaki is a good one. Hiramitsu Mora versus Carlos Condit's another one. Hell, you could even do some of the Varner fights that were pretty great along the way as well. But to me, this is one of the best and most important WEC fights. And 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 what the WEC rep- represented at the time was yes, it had the 135ers and the 145ers. Which, w, which UFC did not. So they had this WEC lightweight division. For a time, they had middleweight and light heavyweight too. They had, and they had, they had welterweight. They had some other guys. Uh, shouts to Steve the Robot Cantwell. But in terms of that 155 and below, what they had was just an excitement factor. You felt like if I tune into UFC lightweights, I'll get some good fights. I might get some great ones. If I tune into WEC fights, am I going to get just action and you know just guaranteed excitement? That's what WEC felt like at the time. And for these two guys to do what they do with that punctuating moment at the end with the Showtime kick, it just goes down in one of my minds as like a fight I can rewatch all the time. I love this contest. I love the way you you played up the legacy of WEC because like at that time when it was vying for your attention, I remember it feeling like ECW felt when we were watching wrestling in the 90s. And you're like, oh my God, this is just different. Like it's just everything about that. So for this fight... To be the final fight in that promotion's history and to live up to it and then deliver that moment, Luke. I remember thinking, like, damn, hey, like put the that, that on was BC. I got, real quick. Sorry, put the camera on. BC. That Sorry. was a absolute perfect storm. Uh, the Henderson Pettis fight of everything that was great about WEC, but then shooting it forward because you knew these guys were going to the UFC the next day. Um, I think like the fourth Marquez and Pacquiao fight because that right hand Marquez delivered to knock Pacquiao out cold sort of seems to overtake the fact that that fight is you know maybe the, maybe the best fight since Corrales Castillo won right like just insane I think this fight too Henderson Pettis never gets the you know was back and forth and strategic changes it never gets the respect because the moment of this of the Showtime kick was so insane and Luke that was like I remember sitting in the basement newsroom at ESPN watching that as it happened and like WEC already felt like a video game so, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just felt, was, like, ridiculous. And then to have that moment, which you, you know, your mind hadn't even thought of that in a real fight, right? It's like doing a and-one basketball move, like, you know, in the in the NBA Finals. It, I can't, I still can't believe it happened. It's, it's one of it those the, things. It was honestly, you could, you could, it's very hard to argue that they could have put another fight and gotten a better WEC send-off. It was the perfect WEC send-off. All right, what you got for number three? Uh, number three, Luke... I'm going to put up here as one of the hardest fights to watch as it was happening because it was so brutal. But the batshit and craziness that Mark Hunt and Antonio Bigfoot Silva showed in the first of their heavyweight rivalry UFC fight night in Australia, I think it was Brisbane, and it was December of 2013. I will never forget the way this fight made me feel when, you know, both were cut open, but they were cut open on like... 1980s pro wrestling Ric Flair in Greenville, South Carolina with a razor blade. I mean, it was just ridiculous. At the end of round four, I did not believe that these two could produce more action. And I also did not believe that it would have been safe for them to even go out there and continue. It was the first fight I remember fearing like death as it was happening. And I hate that feeling. And I felt that feeling briefly in Ioana and Whaley one, which not everybody felt, but I was cage side too. But 
they went out for the fifth round, and it was crazy altogether. And to see this fight surprise... It's not that I didn't think this fight could end at a knockout, right? It's Mark Hunt, right? It's Bigfoot Silva. But to see this fight be a sustained, batshit crazy, constant momentum changes, rolling over and one taking full mount and raining down punches, near submission attempts, I never thought these two could offer that over five rounds, and I never thought that they could keep it going through round five. So to see that end in a majority draw, it was such a like a play on your emotions already that you're like, oh shit, it just accomplished nothing. They'll get a rematch. We'll be excited about it to a certain degree. Although I think Mark Hunt smoked him and knocked him out early in the rematch. But Luke, please tell me that you were feeling some of what I was feeling. Maybe the blood made it seem worse than it was in the moment, which can happen. But in the moment, it felt like I was watching war play out on TV and I was like screaming for a ceasefire. This is the first time I can remember I've ever done this. I've done it a couple times. I think I did this for like Lawler and McDonald too. Was when I had to watch through my fingers. I was literally, I could not believe the damage they were doing to each other. So I had to watch. I was like, oh my God, oh my fucking God. How are they still doing this? I couldn't believe this. This fight was in Australia. I think you mentioned it was, it was down under. It was I, I was shocked at what I was looking at. The, the, you, you, when heavyweights hit each other this hard, it always the fight always gets stopped one way or the other. Like there's just no way you can hit each other this hard and the fight keeps going. And it did. It just kept going. An extraordinary amount of violence in this contest. Really, in in many ways, even you know, one of Bigfoot's better all time performances. To be honest with you, losing or winning, like this is he put up a phenomenal job in this contest. And Mark Hunt did the same. A, a unforgettable fight is the way I would put it. Unforgettable. Good shit. All right. With that in mind, my number three. Speaking of Nick Diaz, I'm going to go Nick Diaz versus Takanori Gomi. Pride 33. This, is, this was on, um, I think, in f- February of 2007. <coughs> Let me explain the circumstance of this one. This is the famous Gogo Plata that Nick Diaz hit. But there's more to the story. You have to understand where they were when they fought. Takanori Gomi had had a couple of losses in Shuto, but he was lo- that was long since forgotten. He was widely considered to be the best lightweight in the world. He had lost to Marcus Aurelio in a non-title contest because Pride had done that, but he got his title back, or he got, he got the win back later. He had never lost the title, right? So there was all of that. So he was, he was basically in this position where he was the guy in this weight class. Nick Diaz, by contrast, was well-respected, but was in a very different spot. Nick Diaz had lost... To Diego Sanchez, he had lost to Joe Riggs, he had lost to Sean Shirk, he was bounced from UFC, he had fought previously, then he came back and he beat Josh Neer and he beat Gleason Tebow, and those were nice wins, but I think the Tebow win at UFC 65 was on the preliminary card? Yes, it was. It was the headlining bout of the preliminary card. So then he goes into there and then takes on Takanori Gomi, leaves the UFC again and goes and takes on Takanori Gomi. And Gomi, again, we're talking about a guy who could not have been more highly regarded at the time. He's taking Diaz down, but Diaz is going to work in the boxing in the first round. But he gets hit. You know, we, he, I think he had to get 14 stitches on that massive cut over his. And in the second round, he goes in there and begins to go to fucking work on Gomi. And the crowd is on their goddamn feet. He eventually gets into the scenario where he was able to apply the go-go plata, which, I mean, dude, this is the closest thing Nick has to Nate beating Connor. It's not the same for a lot of different reasons. Nate was on last minute notice, and there's a whole there was a you had to go up a weight class and all this bullshit. But in terms of a Diaz brother taking on a fight that 
you know, his supporters believed he could do well in, but the vast majority of the public thought that I think Gomi was going to win, where this guy was like on a high, couldn't have, couldn't have been higher than what it was. And then to go in there and have the whole thing flipped upside down by Nick Diaz. And then to do it with like that special jujitsu flair that the Diaz brothers have shown, this was epic peak fucking Nick Diaz. It was, by the way, at, at, I think at lightweight for them, which was whatever her pride had at the time. It may have been 155. I can't remember anymore. But you get the idea. It was an unbelievable showcase. Remember, this was Pride trying to make their way into Las Vegas. So Pride was trying to take over at that time, or at least you know make a make a push into the American market. Yes, it sucked that Gomi lost for them, but for Diaz to just rise to the occasion in this way after getting hurt, after getting controlled, after getting cut, it's just one of the most epic things you'll ever fucking see. And I don't know if a lot of folks really remember it, but I remember that fight very closely. A... Um, an incredible dynamic win, one of Diaz's best, and truly those brothers, boy, they got, you send them your promotional darling, I mean, maybe Hamza would have run them over, but in general, there's been times where you send those guys your promotional darling, and the Diaz brothers are going to send them home in a fucking body bag, this yeah. is a, a, a historic achievement for him. Or back then, you send them your legends, like, you know, Frank Shamrock, and he's just going to dismantle and take him apart but yep. you know we did talk about during that resume review as you mentioned how pivotal this was in nick's career and uh yeah that was a joy to watch man that was some intensity building up in that one look i do have a lot of respect for your list all right all, all right. right very good well, You're I, a and real I, fan. yours but with that said number two number two is the greatest fight in bellator history like with a bullet and I think it's a way better all-time great modern action fight than it necessarily gets the respect it deserves and that happened at Bellator 106, November of 2013. The rematch, Eddie Alvarez versus defending lightweight champion Michael Chandler. In some ways, I mean, Eddie's fought everywhere, all around the globe, and, and has always been in great wars. But I always felt like this fight in particular, coming off of how good their first one was, really made both of them on a, on a much broader level than, you know, MMA undergrounds. And... What I love about this fight most, there's two reasons. One is the constant play on our emotions. We call in pro wrestling, Luke, false finishes. Like, why was Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage at WrestleMania 3 so great? Because it was like an early, you know, edition of like 21 false finishes where you constantly think you know the outcome or where we're going, and then it gets pulled, the rug gets pulled out from under you. This one had batshit crazy, dramatic momentum changes where you look like somebody was two punches away and, you know, the damage they each took, the, the times their lights got shut out, only get sh turned right back on again, and they're, they're in the middle of it. it. It's a, you know, it's a credit to them being two of the greatest TV action fighters of all time, but also being great fighters on top of that. But I just never thought heading into this that they could beat their first fight when Chandler scored a very late submission, and it was such a great fight. And there was so much talk in the build-up to the second one where they both went on runs of stopping people, particularly Eddie knocking out Shinya Aoki in the first round and then head-kicking Patricky Pitbull in the first round. And it was like, oh, crap, they're going to line up again. And Chandler was blowing people away just the same. But I just didn't think they were going to be able to up what I saw in that first fight with the entertainment level and the, the show of heart. I mean, they did it. For five rounds and it was a split decision and Eddie got the nod and I think in hindsight you know you could have argued either way I liked Eddie in real time but you know three four five fights you would take with you to a to a to a deserted island and live alone for the rest of your day 
I think Eddie Alvarez and Michael Chandler part two has to be on that list because it was all that and then some. And and I, I even wish Bellator did more of like, hey, guys, remember how awesome this fight was? And just put mm-hmm. it out there more often because it's deserving. And correct me if I'm wrong. I remember this fight week. This was Eddie's last fight with Bellator, correct? He went on to UFC after this. Uh, yes. I believe that's correct. We can double check. If I'm not, you can dead wrong me. But I believe that I, I, I recall covering this fight week and I... Let me, he fought let me, Donald Cerrone uh, uh, the, the, the year, 11 months later, he fought Donald Cerrone to make his uh, UFC debut. Yeah, you double-checked that? Yep. I remember, I remember in this fight week, a big part of it was like, is he going to stay? What's going to happen with Bellator? Did you like how you were treated by Bellator? Like, all that shit was a big part of it. Yeah, he beat Michael Chenning when he fight Donald Cerrone. This was it. This was, his, this was his last one. And they gave him the guy who had, A, previously beaten him, right? And then B, the guy who was kind of like the guy at in Bellator at the time, or at least, um, you know, Will Brooks was kind of floating around too. But, you know, it was their poster guy for a time. Michael Chandler was the poster guy for Bellator for a little while. And, dude, you're right. I agree, I agree with you. I'm glad you put this on the list. One of the forgotten fights of the aughts that was fucking bananas. By the way, I believe that Chandler fighting Alvarez the first time was the same day as Shogun versus uh, Dan Henderson won. So kind of wow. a little bit of a con- con- connection there. You know, I, remember, I, d- remember I worked the ESPN newsroom that night, and I was the MMA guy. Yeah, man, I remember that exactly with, with like, you know, split screens and, and two. It's rare when that happens that you get two no-hitters on the same night. You know what I mean? It's, it's crazy. All right, so for my number two, I'm going to go all the way back to 2006. I remember exactly where I was when I watched this fight. Carl Parisian versus Diego Sanchez. This is just one of my, my favorite fights in combat sports, period. I've got some favorite boxing fights even jiu-jitsu matches that I really kind of go back to and think about a little bit. Carl Parisian taking on Diego Sanchez is just, it's it for me. Um, I remember the lead-up to this one. The odds were super close. They had Caro as a slight favor, but you got to understand the reality here. Diego Sanchez had come off the ultimate fighter and was making a name for himself through the organization. He had beaten some good guys, but at the time there was, you know, the, 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 the Brian Gastaways or whatever his name was, and I think he'd beaten even Joe Riggs for a time, but... There was still questions like, how good are the ultimate fighter guys? Are they really all that great? Caro was a guy who was sort of put in that air of, he's up there with the very best at welterweight. He kind of fallen short against St. Pierre and some other guys. Never got his Matt Hughes fight because it had fallen through, even though he had been set up for a title shot um, due to injury. But he was that guy who, you know, he was right there in that place. And Diego was, I think, undefeated at the time, rising through, and they met. And I was like, man, I did not know how this was going to go. And I remember BC, none of my friends watched MMA, so I went to a bar that is now defunct. It used to be in Clarendon, Virginia, called Summers. Famous sports bar in the area for a long time. I think the pandemic finally took it under. But um, I watched by myself. I remember getting pictures of beer, watching this fight by myself on Spike TV, and I was just blown away and overjoyed at everything. And one of the things I really love about this fight is it's fucking back and forth. I mean, Caro was throwing Diego all over this fucking octagon, but... Diego sticking it out, finding ways to get the takedown, heavy ground and pound, pushing Caro back. You know, Caro doing everything he can to throw this guy off balance and to and to do what he can as well. But Diego just being a fucking dog when it mattered between them. And the other part I like about it is sort of a, a historical note. Now in MMA, if a guy gets taken down, particularly of a big judo throw, and there's not a lot of control through the process into the final establishment of the takedown on the mat you'll see that right away the job is to get back up. People just want to get back up. But back in 2006, it wasn't really clear that that was the best strategy. So what you see here a lot of times is a lot of guard play. They're not even trying to necessarily get back to their feet. Oh, now we're on the ground? Okay, well, here's my jujitsu. 
And so you get a very different kind of fight than you would get today. And, and, and you know, you could say maybe worse or better, but it's fun to see some of those, like when people like really had to focus on their guard. How did their yeah. guard look? You get a lot of that here. This is a dynamic fight. This is thrilling. This is a moment of triumph for Diego Sanchez in overcoming a lot of obstacles in reaching new heights. And it's just maybe my it's maybe my favorite fight night fight ever in the history of all the fight nights. I fucking love this contest. It's by the way, not surprised that Nick Diaz is on this list twice, and Nate could have been on it a million times, but not surprised that Carl Parisian is on. You should be because we don't talk about him enough, but you look back at those, dude, he had a handful of fights like this, Luke. I th- what I love best about Carl is he never respected his opponent. Like, it was just no, on him. It was never. dripping. Whether he's facing GSP or the DS, it's dripping on him that he has no respect. And his defense could be lag, so he always had a lean on his chin, but he had the dynamic judo, which back then was like a superpower that he'd pull, on, pull these drag throws on people that was ridiculous. But, yeah, great to see him show up here twice, Luke. I hated seeing the second half of his career kind of fall apart because he was yeah, special. Yeah, when he faded, he faded fast. Yeah. I mean, really fast. He was bloated in Bellator for a while, and it went bad, Luke. That was a bad rub. But, bad but in his prime, dude, win or lose, fucking Caro was absolutely must-see TV. Makes you proud to be Armenian, Luke. You know? He does. He does make me proud. Damn right. Armenian. All right, Luke, my number one favorite fight in MMA history. You're not going to be surprised. I don't really care if you don't love it as much as I do because I was there. I felt it. I sniffed it. I drank it. I lived it. It was an interim middleweight title co-main event at UFC 236 in Atlanta. April 13th, 2019. Shout out, Bogo. That's your birthday. I know that. Uh, This is one of the greatest fights in the modern era. And the intensity of this, along with Poirier Holloway that night, also for an interim belt that, you know, you could argue was just as good or, or, and I don't think it'll ever get the recognition it deserves either because it followed this fight. There was something in the air that night, and, and it may have actually been Dana White floating interim titles on two fights that didn't need them. It didn't call for it, but it raised the stakes and the intensity. And I think Kelvin Gastelum gets much maligned because he's unable to keep it together on the elite level, kind of like Darren Till. Well, there's a lot of hiccups. This was the night, though, where Kelvin Gastelum was as great as, as he ever was. An interim title at stake. He was supposed to have fought Whitaker for the belt, but it fell apart last minute. This was sort of his prize for that. And for Adesanya at that point in his rise, you know, beating Derek Brunson the way he did at MSG, we, we, we stepped up a notch in our belief that he's going to monster places. But you're never going to believe someone that skilled is the guy until they have to prove it. And you only have to look further than the opening of the fifth round when Adesanya looks across at Gaslam and, you know, lip syncs and you can kind of pick it up like, I, I, I'm ready to die here. He crossed a barrier the, the hard way, the old school way, to endure the damage in that fight and the back and forth momentum. And, you know, there, he got dropped. I mean, there, there, that was a crazy fight. Maybe it will never equal the Hendo Shogun 1 type of level of action fights because, you know, there was a good mixture of skill. But it's the very best of two guys who refused to lose that night and just put on mayhem, unscheduled mayhem in front of me. And, you know, in hindsight, Luke, it was also a pretty damn high-skilled fight. The way that Gastelum set up his punches uh, was, was, look, that's the best of him. But I do look back and say Gastelum had a moment where he hurt Adesanya late, I think it was round four, and he shot in for a takedown that was unsuccessful, and he kind of missed the moment there momentum-wise that I think is going to kick him for a while. But this is just one of those special nights where whatever that feeling was that the drug 
you know, made you feel, you know, you'll never be the same and you hope you can feel that way for the rest of your life. And I, every time I interview Adesanya, by the way, I thank him for this fight. And not in like a weird, you know, self way or anything like, no, it's thank you. Thank you for showing us what is inside of you because you needed it that night and it was beautiful. And Luke, this is what it's all about at the end of the day, not Twitter followers or the money we make to be on TV or any of this other MMA awards. It's the reason why we want to do this for a living. Fights like this, bro. I don't think you felt what I felt, Luke, but you better damn right tell me it's one of the best fights you've ever seen. You better. You better. It's, it's a phenomenal contest. Also, let me ask you this. Would you agree? Now, he's had some great wins, but I, I got to tell you, in terms of the level of ability he showed, this is probably Gastelum's best fight. And I don't say that, like, oh, well, his best fight was one that he lost. I don't even mean it that way. I actually mean it the opposite way. Like, dude, he gave it to Izzy that night. Like, don't you feel like Gastelum, like the level of, like, for example, like, and one thing I pointed out was like the head movement in this fight. His head movement in this contest is better than any other one he's ever had. Absolutely. The way he set up his shots, which is what I said. So, yeah, to echo your point, I had made that point twice during my long ramble. This is the best Gastelum there ever was. Interim title at stake. But he not only sold out in ways with his chin that was ridiculous, to your and my combined point, dude, there was a next-level ability to get underneath Adesanya's guard using daring, darting head movement and, and upper trunk movement that you just don't see him do today, Luke. He went all in because the task demanded it, and he actually got inside on Adesanya and gave him a hell of a trouble in terms of the two-way striking. I mean, what a night. What a freaking night. That was an incredible night. And so, again, followed by Max Holloway taking on uh, Dustin Poirier. Just fucking nuts that you were there in Atlanta. Pretty great night. Um, for me, again, it's by far not the best UFC fight. Definitely not that. Not even the best UFC heavyweight fight. But for me, the most... Let me explain something to you. You guys know I don't care for pro wrestling. It's not for me. But the guy who has done... And I've said this before, at least for a stage in my career, more than anyone else, was Brock Lesnar. The Brock Lesnar era, I cannot describe to you. He, he was a shot of adrenaline into MMA. It's really the best way to put it. And when he took on Shane Carwin, UFC 116, on uh, January of 2010, I was just... I could not wait for this contest. I remember BC literally hyperventilating when Shane Carwin... Because here's what you knew. like Shane Carwin came out, and you, you know what he was going to do. He was going to lower the boom on anyone he fought. He, Dude, I mean, if you've never, say the you've never, run... Say the run that Shane Carlin was on of first-round KOs over, like, legends, right? I mean, it was ridiculous. I, yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but, like, here's a great one for you. Here's a little piece of trivia for you if you want. Go watch a Shane Carlin take on a guy by the name of Christian Wellish. Christian Wellish was out of AKA. It was a, it was a, he was a good fighter. This was UFC 84. In fact, this was the Shane Carlin's debut. It only lasts 44 seconds. He hits fucking Wellish with a punch that launches his mouthpiece into outer fucking space and just turns Wellish's head in ways that, like, remember how Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson used to hit guys, and when their hair would spin in, like, the opposite direction that their head was going, or, like, it would follow? That's what you would see with, with Shane Carwin. He was just fucking demolishing people. So he beats Christian Wellish, Neil Wayne, Gabriel Gonzaga, he knocks out in a minute and nine seconds. Frank Mir, he beats in 2010 in, in a UFC 211, and then follows it up with Brock Lesnar, who he was giving an absolute fucking beating to i could not the sound i make a joke about my wife i one time went to this masseuse bc and it was this uh it was this elderly chinese lady bro she gave me the old shane carwin fucking ufc 116 ground and pound i couldn't believe how much it fucking hurt when she was in there doing it and i joke about it with my wife because i was like i've never seen someone take punches like that take take fucking strikes like that and find a way to hang on it miraculously 
Brock makes it to the second. I mean, easy 10-8 round score. I don't know if they were doing it at the time, but it should have been. 10-5. How about 10-5? I mean, mean, he was dog-walking Brock Lesnar. But fucking Brock Lesnar, that, that bastard. Second round comes out, changes the equation, gets a takedown on Shane Carwin, proceeds to start putting a beating on him, and eventually locks up a head and arm triangle. And folks who may have never trained may never realize this. That head and arm triangle was not a very good one. Like, it was not a very technical head and arm triangle. Brock Lesnar put all of that Minnesota, South Dakota squeeze into everything he had after getting demolished in the first round and choked that fucker out and and got the tap at uh, 219 of the second round. I mean, dude, BC, there are not many fights when they are over where I even say to myself, Dude, I need a cigarette. I needed Dude, that a, was a movie. cigarette after that fight, it was bro. A movie. It was insane. I mean, he f- he's a pro wrestler who's fighting a guy who looks like a pro wrestler. A guy who had never been out of the first round in 13 pro fights up to that point. <laughs> By the way, I forget that Shane Carwin only had six total UFC fights. And, you know, four of them were just first round demolitions. The way he beat Frank Mayer, this was like legit danger to Brock. It's actually the worst style matchup for Brock Lesnar who was never loved getting punched in the face, and here you've got a guy you know, who's just a badass who's demolishing people in round one. We don't even need to know if Carwin has a gas tank or a jiu-jitsu game because no one's getting there. Luke, it's actually a crime that this isn't on my list or maybe isn't number one. I've got the poster right here. You can't overemphasize how different this, felt, this fight felt, not just to your point of Brock being this you know, inc- adrenaline incision who had you know, a handful of fights, not even that, but he won in the most extreme pro wrestling movie comeback sort of way. Like, yeah, Carwin's, you know, he dumped his cardio there at the end of that first round in legendary ways. And Josh Rosenthal needs to be, you know, praised for mm. watching close enough that Lesnar got cut open. But, you know, by the second half of that, he was weathering a lot of that storm. It's the only fight that's felt, even the build, it felt like Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania three. Like, it felt just this thing that's so different from actual sport it was bizarre like i try to imagine that's what like joe lewis and max schmeling part two felt for people who were like tied into the war and listening by the radio and it's not even about boxing it's about my country against yours fighting for freedom for some reason this fight felt different dude it's one of my favorite pay-per-view nights of all time and i remember exiting going you know what it doesn't matter that brock lesnar doesn't have all these fight skills He's got stupid heart. Like, you couldn't have doubted him in that moment, dude. He came back and beat the shit out of Frank Mir. Like, amazing. Just amazing across the board. And I I had an epic night. I was live. At the time, I was editor-in-chief of Bloody Elbow, and I remember live blogging it that night. Just, I could barely breathe watching that shit. So, I can't, I can't, I've never had more fun than that. Um, What a night. That's my number one. All right, BC. uh, We've got a very long show here. Time to wrap up. It's time for uh, fan subs. Take it away. Yeah, let's do it quickly. It's morningcombat at gmail.com. Send us your pics of you in tight t-shirts, or if you're Jay Paquette, send us email after email. And now you got a code named after you. This one's called Fan Submissions. You've got mail. Viewers. We've got the, mail. I, I just do the fart noise now for everything. <laughs> Viewers. Yes, we do. Uh, this one's from Nick. He says, good morning, BC and Luke. Glad to have you both back in studio. While Luke was on vacation, BC made a few ent- references to My Morning Jacket, the band, saying he'd seen them eight or nine times. 
I, w- I was actually lucky enough to accompany him to one of those shows in the summer of 06 when they opened for Pearl Jam at the Meadows in Hartford. That was a great show, dude. I got so drunk, I punched all my friends in the balls really hard. Look, I feel bad about that in, in retrospect, right? I bet, I bet you don't actually feel bad I about do. that in retrospect. Uh, he says it was his first MMA, MMJ show, and in com- commemoration of that event, he's created art for this show. This one I call My Morning Combat Jacket. And it is a watercolor mashup of the album cover Z and the MK logo. It may make a great first tattoo. That's actually pretty badass, Luke. If you say so. Yeah, that's that's some art right there. Uh, he wants me to get it as a tattoo, Luke. I won't go that far. All right. That's keep a making terrible your, idea for a tattoo. Your art, gentlemen, and I will keep sending mine at Dawn We Ride. By the way, that wasn't a great My Morning Jacket show because there was nobody there. You've seen better, I'm sure. Let's go to Danny, who says, Dad Life MK style. It's Danny from the UK. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. (laughs) Yes. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Look at you in that hostage room with ISIS. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I survived. I had to to give a lot, Luke. Okay, I survived, though. Bro, when they nap at that age and they're out for like three hours, that's like the best feeling in the world. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Danny, for sharing your fatherhood with us. Look, you've got low moments during the day that the day sucks. Put on MK, right? Do you know what they call Stella Artois in in the UK? Didn't you say they call it beer? They call it wife beater. You mean the shirt that Jake Paul was wearing at the press conference on Monday? Yes. Yeah, they call it wife beater. Interesting. Maybe they can change that, all right, in 2022, Luke. I don't think they're trying. But according to you, all of Europe is racist. So let's continue, Luke. Let's yeah, they're go pretty, over they're, to... They're, no, they're not. But they're no, they're not, I mean, they're as racist as anybody else. They're just in denial about it. They're just like, oh, yeah, we're not racist. But, you know, we yeah. have this totally segregated society. Okay. Luke, you ever hear of JP from Mount Unike, Nova Scotia? He says, good day, guys. I was able to get a local metal sign fabricator to make this for me. Morning combat metal sign. How awesome is this? My wife Holy and I are... Shit. Wow, that's pretty badass. My wife and I are currently designing an outdoor kitchen on the lakeside of our house. I plan on mounting this with some cool backlighting on the barn board wall. Massive thanks and shout out to Mikey for sending the official MK logo so this could happen. Greatly appreciated. Love you guys. Super fan for life. JP. Luke, that's badass. We should sell that in the damn uh, in the damn store, right? Yeah, I mean, as nice as it is that he's mounting this on his property, he should just send it to us instead. <laughs> Maybe JP will invite us to the uh, lake house, Luke. Yeah, and, or invite us to the lake house, at which point I will just we'll, steal it. We'll do MK in your house pay-per-view, okay? Hold we'll on, bring Chef Kaz to like, with us. I don't understand. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. Go back to the slide, the last one, with the, with the nature in the background. I don't understand this. It's a picture of, like, a dock on the bottom where combat, and then it's, like, verdant hills on under morning. It's like a split screen, right? Like, what am I looking well, at here? No, combat is the water, Luke, is the lake, right? And then the top oh, is I the Oh, I see. And then the other and... side of the lake is the top yeah. where morning is. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's all right, Luke. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm uh, a jackass. Thank you, JP. That's fantastic. Let's go to Kevin. He says, this is Brian versus Luke, the poster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they spelled my last name wrong, but that's fine, Luke. <laughs> You wearing that Reebok gear? Yeah, damn right I am, dude. You better believe it. Dude, I can't believe you would back Venom. That's such bullshit. Do you drink Mickey's malt liquor too, Luke? Hey, only when I want to get stung. Yeah. Uh, let's go to, uh, I don't know this guy's name, to Mike, or is that Torn, Torn Ike? I don't know what this is. Hello, Luke and Brian. I'm your fan from the Republic of Georgia. Yes. 
Since I've started following MK in 2012, I've been watching Luke's early PMLCs. Yes, Luke, I'm one of the fans who has been watching your face for hours without getting any sound. And MMA beat. And you have no idea how happy I was when your collaboration was formed. Thank you, uh, Tornike. Uh, unfortunately, I've got no merch to pose, but here's some memes I've made. Keep your divine work going and never stop. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. That's true. Well, by the way, that's a very fair meme, but it's also true of BC. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh, what was the other one again? You got that? Yeah, uh, it was about your liver and then the organs right. going to the gas station. I'm tired, boss. Yeah, yeah. Well done there. All right, let's go to JP again. This guy's our new co-host, Luke. Uh, good day, guys. During last Friday's show, BC introduced his new filler segment called Fill in the Blank. I found a couple pictures of Luke's unseen reaction as he struggled through the experience. Show us how you really feel about this new segment called Blank. Don't worry, it's only 10 questions, and we'll prolong the show plus 20 minutes as you pass away on us. Okay, it's a moderately okay meme. Okay. Uh, He says uh, he's got a second one, Luke, here. Oh, no, that's it. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you, Jabe. Oh, maybe he does. Let's see it. I thought fill in the blank was spectacular. I mean, is it you know over under? No, but it's it's we're getting some. It's I getting mean, these there. memes are moderately passable. There's not really a punchline to them, so you know you gotta kind of have to. Oh, here we go. You're, you're like you're like don't don't get too happy with that promo code, JP. Uh, this is Andre Andrade Andre B Andrade. It's Demetrius Andrade. Greetings, fellow wash dads. Uh, Andre Mexican tattooer from Vegas over here. I can't count all the times you mofos made me laugh out loud, so I drew you guys a token of my appreciation for helping my Mexican ass build a better vocabulary by virtue of cynicism and good old bullshitting. Keep it up, amigos. I know as well that if you're in Vegas and need a tattoo for a bit or whatever, I got you guys covered. Uh, A tattoo out of the Rio at a reputable shop. Here's my goofy art page. Uh... He's in at Instagram. He's uh, into the abyss art on Instagram. Dude, this is amazing. Yeah, his this is good work right here. This guy, I love this. That send that to me, Mikey, who's watching this. I love this. I'm gonna post that on social. Also, the thing with the fly is really we're, our know, dicks we're shaking hands? hands through our fly. That's really yeah, that's, uh, that's we're little, sad. It's a sad yeah. thing that we promoted. Luke, should I trust this man to tattoo me one day if Sean Brady defeats? Uh, uh, Bilal, remember the name well, of the people who do the artwork aren't necessarily the same people who do the tattooing. So you would need to find someone who's an excellent tattoo applicant. Oh, that's two separate. That's like writing the songs and writing the the music. Not necessarily. Yeah. Some people the do. A lot of people and... do both. A lot of people do both, but they're not necessarily they're not necessarily the same. Do you feel like a musician can't be truly great unless he writes his own lyrics and music, Luke? I'd say this much. Like there was controversy. I saw someone being like, "Oh, Beck, you know, writes and produces his own songs." Like when we look at his songwriting credits, either just him or him and like one other person. And then Beyonce's got like twenty five, and then people will defend Beyonce for that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, you could defend it for all kinds of reasons, but like, who's the better artist? Beck is the better artist. Sorry, I don't even like Beck. Beck sucks, dude. Beck Beck sucks. But in terms of like actual command of the art, he's better. Yeah, and that's where it's at, Beck. You suck. All right. Okay. Oh, uh, in Luke, the back of chimpanzees, I was a monk. I'm like, get the yeah, fuck Yeah, I mean, get, get out. That's, he, you know, he's only got to go to parties because he was famous. He's not cool, Luke. Uh, this is from JP of Nova Scotia. Dude, do we have a filter on the amount of JP on today's show? Good day, MK crew and fans. Episode 346, we should all thank BC for taking one for the team with his dedication and commitment to service. 
Nothing said remote location coverage like Morning Combat live from the Atlantic City ISIS bedbugs basement bunker. <laughs> AG1 and bedbugs. What else do we really need? Love you guys. Super fan for life. Uh, that Can we blow that up again? I didn't get to see it yeah, fully. Yet. That's a good one. That's a good one. The bedbugs, the lack of cable discipline anywhere in that fucking room. Yeah. <laughs> And that, just the vast amount of insects is really yeah. I this guy's it. this guy's the Canadian web scream, Luke. He's making moves. Wow, he's taking everything web scream worked for. Though, I'll tell you that much. And Luke, we've got another one from JP here. All right, what the fuck are we doing? I mean, what this are we is doing here, Mike Hour? Uh, good day, crew. It was BC versus Luke in an unofficial MK product sponsorship <laughs> pissing contest. BC said on episode 347, why don't you vape with a tougher, more manly flavor? Forget about this watermelon buffalo. Be a factory town MMA OG like me and rock the precancer flavor shark charcoal vape. Real vape charcoal like men do. Uh, and Luke says more manly precancer. And then Luke came back with, I banged to Rainbow Unicorn. Like anyone drinking Bang Energy drink gives two shits about the flavor. <laughs> Ooh, that's good shit, Luke. Good yeah, shit. like, dude, like, oh, what flavor is it? Like, who fucking cares? You're drinking nonsense. Just get it, get it done with. All right, JP, you're back for that one. You're back. Uh, we close with Danger Mouse, as we tend to do. Hey, guys, some of the terrible mistakes where stuff wasn't shown last week. Sorry about that. Or he says some kind of something happened. Yeah, it did. Uh, so I'm back with a vengeance. Let's see how many of these I can get past Mikey. Let's start with the Monday show, but with a new thumbnail. ASMR edition. Did they hear us squeaking and shit like that in there? That's uh, interesting. Thank you. The next one is from something Luke revealed on his personal show. What show is that, Luke? I guess my live chat. Do a drunk stone. Oh, dude, people are uh, desperate for us to do a uh, room service diaries again, like the old the old style kind. Do they you want know? us to get like fired and divorced. Uh, yes, and they want us to get fired. Is they they're desperate for this show to go up in smoke. They're desperate. Uh, Danger Mouse says, as an Englishman, I can't miss the opportunity to call Luke out on his comments about our former queen, and also dead wrong to him on the pronunciation of Norwich. It's pronounced Norwich. Norwich. The W yeah. is silent, just as in Greenwich Village. Okay. We'll say Norwich. No, no, Norwich is pronounced Norwich. You fuckers can drop letters if you want. It's Norwich. And Luke, he Danger also, Mouse is uh, gonna. You know, I, I don't. I also don't care. So. Here's a modified movie poster from Danger Mouse to close. What a marathon episode we gave the people today, Luke. Well, I think you gave them one. I wanted to go a little bit faster. Uh, the men who stare at goats. <laughs> Looks like BC. I want you to go, but I want you to only give like half of how good you can be. Look, I don't think that's possible. I think it is possible. That's how you showed up at 10.58 for the Zoom you're supposed to be on at 10.30. You gave us half of yourself. All right. <laughs> uh, let's remind everyone. I gave everyone. you the best half, Luke, okay? Let's, let's remind everyone. We are going to have, let's see, Friday's show. I think BC is going to do an instant reacts to the Canelo Triple G fight on Saturday. We are going to have the Chael and Room Service Diaries tomorrow. We have a lot of content coming your way. So thumbs up, hit subscribe, all that stuff. Give us a follow on the socials. We're on TikTok, by the way. We're on the place where all the kids do what they do, and then the BBLs shake their rear ends. And I don't know who looks at that kind of thing, but I'm told BC does. Um, that, just take that for what it's worth. Uh, what else, BC? Uh, Morningcombat at gmail.com for Friday's Dead Wrongs. For the stuff we get wrong, you can hit us up there. My daughter's merch banging situation. on the door here. Uh, Morningcombat.store. So right now, yeah, we'll get you our store. merch. But how about 15% off using our code for today? What's the code again? 
JP15, JAYP15, 15% off because of his great artwork. You can wear ours, all right? How about that? Luke, some people want to buy my painting, some MK fans. For what, like a dollar? No, no, Luke. I mean, look, do you, do you, you hate this one? I'm going places, Luke. Do I hate it? Yeah. No, I don't hate it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's pretty good for a kid. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it looks like an old vagine or something weird. You know? No, no, no. I'm not like, not every joke has to be about that. Um, all right. Showtime is, that is the label that pays. Go to Showtime.com. Get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. We have been here way too fucking long. I don't so want to be here call it a day. So yeah. for CBS Sports, Malka, Showtime, Brian Campbell, I'm Luke Thomas. RSD tomorrow with Chael. We'll see you all Friday live at 11 in, in the East. Until then, may all your gains be loyal.